You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Hello and welcome back to the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast, episode 136. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm uh, Manny Manuel. I know this is an audio podcast. You can't see it, but there are some smiling faces on the Skype call tonight. We are excited. Uh, for you, the listener, we actually haven't had any hiatus at all. But for me and Manny, it has been a month, which for us might as well be a lifetime. We haven't uh, haven't sat down and recorded an episode in a long time. All of Almost all of our December episodes were pre-recorded. Uh, you know, because life gets in the way of actually being able to record. So we are back. We are recording this on time. It is January 6th, 2021. We made it, people. We're here. Manny, how are you feeling tonight? I am fucking pumped, dude. I've been at work all day. I busted my ass to get done as quickly as possible so I could get home here to do this podcast with you. I am fucking excited to be back in this chair Looking at your pretty face, talking about movies. Yeah, it uh, it feels like it's been a bit. I have been bursting at the seams. There's a lot of movies I have watched over the last month where I'm like, I need Manny's opinion on this. Or, oh, I got to tell Manny this thing about this one movie. There has been a lot of stuff that I have intentionally had to stifle because I knew we were going to be recording this episode tonight. And what this episode is, for you folks listening, uh, we're going to be talking about what we've been watching. Now, you'll uh, you'll know if you're a long-time listener, we usually talk about this within another episode. This will sort of be like our little week catch-up of the week, you know, uh, what we've been watching that week. But since it's been an entire month, we just decided, you know, this is going to need an entire episode to itself because when we get going on movies, we get going on movies. So we're going to record this episode right now. And then uh, after that, we're going to record episode 137 right after. Uh, so stay tuned for that as well. But for right now, we're just going to have ourselves a little good old-fashioned Sam and Manny catch-up. Manny, how does that sound? That sounds spectacular to me. Okay, so uh, before we get into the meat of it, can you please let everyone know where they can find us on social media if they like? Well, let's see if I can remember how to do this. You can <laughs> follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can email us at sammannymoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manual Movie Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We should be there. And if we're not there, you just shoot me a little message on the aforementioned social media, and I will do my best to rectify that situation. And that's everything. Cool. No rust from, uh, from on this end. Sound good. Thanks. Thanks. Um, we talk, talk oh, a little bit, uh, talked a little bit about the format uh, before we got on, but, you know, we're just going to keep things loosey-goosey. Uh, we talked a little bit about our, our, Christmas, uh, our Christmas plans, our holiday plans. That went well. We had ourselves a wonderful December. You, uh, you do any Christmas watching over the holidays, Manny? I did. I watched three movies over Christmas. There's one that I watch every single year. Uh, and then I introduced my daughter to a Christmas, I guess a Christmas classic. I think a lot of people would consider it a Christmas classic. And then she made me watch a Christmas movie I'd never seen before. 
So your daughter's making recommendations to you now. Uh, sure. Chip off the old block. Yeah. So let's start with the one that my daughter decided that I needed to watch. And that is the 2018 animated version of The Grinch. With uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, this movie I've actually wanted to watch for a while for a purely weird reason. Because one of the directors of this animated film is a gentleman by the name of Scott Mosier. And Scott Mosier is podcast and filmmaker extraordinaire Kevin Smith's best friend. Oh, weird. And his producing partner, the guy that produced Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy. Uh, also a, 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 a very, very part-time actor. I think he's only acted in the Viewers Universe films. And so uh, Mosier moved to, I think it was Paris, to do this film. And so I always figured I should probably support old Scotty Moj and watch this movie. And it was my daughter that decided to recommend it for us to watch. And the movie's fine. It's fine. It's mm -hmm. the Grinch. I know that, Sam, your heart holds a special place for the Jim Carrey version of the Grinch. Uh, right. for, for me, it's the original short animated one uh where i think boris karloff is actually the voice of the grinch and i also watched that one quite a bit as a kid that because one, my, my mom loves that version of it but yeah. i i prefer prefer the jim carrey version yeah the boris karloff one for me is the one that i grew up on so it, it's obviously going to hold a special place in my heart this one is fine it's fine i didn't hate it i didn't love it uh, Sam, I didn't mention this actually or even talk about it before since we, we decided to go all loosey-goosey, but I'm probably going to skip rating all the movies we talk about today. Oh. I'm probably just going to pretty much just kind of go with uh, whether I recommend it or not. Okay. I have uh, I have the star ratings at the ready for mine. You're welcome You're welcome to share your ratings if you so wish, but I, I'm okay. just, just going to kind of generally talk about them. Uh, so the Grinch is fine. If if you have kids, put it on. I'm sure they'll like it. So I think it was shortly after. I can't quite remember. If I probably look at my letterbox diary, I'll be able to say exactly when. But I decided to introduce my daughter to a, a Christmas movie that I actually haven't watched in a long time that a lot of people consider a classic. And that is the 1990 family comedy Home Alone. And I did not watch this this year. Okay. Well, for, actually, first off, Sam, have you seen the animated Grinch? Uh, no, I haven't seen the animated Grinch. Okay. It, I it, it doesn't it doesn't jump out to me as something I'd really particularly like to see. I can't recall a moment where I was laughing a lot. Yeah. But I can tell you. For I'm sure you enjoyed watching it with your daughter. I did. I I totally did. But I can mm -hmm. tell you, I I wasn't anxiously waiting for it to end it's a perfectly middle of the road film yeah home alone i un i'm under the assumption you have seen yeah not as often as you might think actually this was never like a must watch growing up or anything like that but i have seen home alone as recently as last christmas i think i, I skipped it this year i haven't seen home alone in probably over 10 years mm -hmm. and i actually saw home alone in the theaters when it came out in 1990. 
and at the time it would have been it it was one of the funniest movies I ever saw. It's it was fucking hilarious. And watching it with my daughter just brought me back. And I actually have recordings of her watching it. I I knew when certain scenes were going to be happening, so I I videotaped her watching it and it was so enjoyable to see her reactions. I actually forgot how good Macaulay Culkin is in this movie for an eight-year-old boy, which is only a year older than my daughter. And I was like, my daughter could not do this. <laughs> <laughs> what a lame child you have, man. I have a can't, super- even, can't even act in a major motion picture. I know. And then I also forgot how great Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are as well. This movie is, it's really good. I'd forgotten how good it is and how much fun I was having watching it. And my daughter loved it. She loved it so much that the next day when my mom had to come watch her because I had to work Sundays, she made my mom watch it with her. Awesome. I know. <laughs> That's always nice when a recommendation sticks, especially when it's your own daughter. Yeah. Uh, so I had a great time watching Home Alone. And, yeah, I I don't know. I might make it an annual thing if my daughter enjoyed it that much. I, I'm more than happy to uh, to do that. And the oh, thing, yeah, the, thing that stand, the thing that stands out to me about Home Alone when I rewatch it is – the entire time I'm watching Joe Pesci on screen, I have Goodfellas in my head. Just, <laughs> I have I have it in my head what an intimidating motherfucker this guy can be when he really sets his mind to it. And mm-hmm. then in Home Alone, even though he's still playing a bad guy, it's just completely a different gear from Joe Pesci. It's it's really fun to me to see the, uh, the, the fun that he's having uh, in this movie as one of the wet bandits. Do you want to know something great about that? Sure. Those are the same year. Real? Oh yeah, I guess Goodfellas was 1990, wasn't it? Yep. That's insane. Just uh, going from uh, you think I'm funny, funny how, <laughs> going yep. from that to uh, to Home Alone, where he's just putting on a fantastic uh, slapstick display. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's it was a lot of fun, and then on Christmas Eve itself, I continued with my Christmas tradition of watching the one Christmas movie that I make sure to watch every year. It's a Christmas movie that I know a lot. I shouldn't say a lot, but I know people like, but I don't think I know anybody that has it in their permanent Christmas rotation like I do. And that's the 1988 Christmas movie, Scrooged. I regret to inform you, Manny. Uh, I have not seen this movie still. It it almost came on the TV a few times. I spent a few different days at Christmas mm-hmm. uh, debating what movies to watch with certain people. And Scrooge almost went on the TV a few times. Never quite did. Oh, I wish it had. This movie, this is my Christmas tradition. And I love it. If If anybody out there has not seen Scrooge... Basically, I'll just recommend it to anybody that is a Bill Murray fan. If you like Bill Murray, then you're going to love this movie because it's all Bill Murray all the time. I I think in the entire one hour and 41 minutes runtime, there's probably 
geez, off the top of my head, three scenes without him in it, maybe? Like, it's it's just the Bill Murray show. And I love it. It's obviously a retelling of A Christmas Carol in a you know more modern setting and from the 80s. It's very 80s. And I have a great time watching it every year. And I cry every year at the end of it. It has a very great message, as it does, because it's a Christmas carol. And, yeah, I, I just, I have a, I have a great time watching this movie. It's, this is my Christmas movie. And, yeah, I love, I love Scrooged. There it is. Cool. Love that energy for you. Maybe I'll get to it next year. Cool. Sam, did you watch any Christmas movies this year? Yeah, I watched four, and uh, we didn't have any overlap, surprisingly enough. Yay, all right, what you got? I guess I guess we watched different sort of Christmas movies. First one, I guess, is debatably a Christmas movie. Again, we get into this all the time. It's not what you think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't watch that one this year, which is really unfortunate. M- Manny and I are thinking about Die Hard right yes, now. Yes, we certainly I think are. that's what you're thinking about. I am, um, yep. I watched this at Halloween, and I watched it again at Christmas. Of course, it's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure whether I would like to make this an annual tradition for either holiday, and if so, which one. But I think watching it twice within two months is a bit much, in my opinion. It's not that good. <laughs> like it's, it's a good movie, and I enjoy watching it. I'm always happy when it's on. But it never strikes me as like having a point or anything. It's just fun. It's just... It's just decent animation, um, a lot of fun little scenes, a pretty good soundtrack for sure. Uh, but I've, it's never struck me as a movie that really has a point. It's just it's just wild. <laughs> it's just wild from the imaginations of Tim Burton and Henry Selleck. Um, I, I gave Nightmare Before Christmas three stars at Halloween. I feel confident giving it that same rating again. Uh, Manny, you've seen Nightmare Before Christmas, right? I have, but honestly, probably not in... Maybe I've maybe watched it once in the last ten years. I, I sh- make, go ahead. It does make a pretty good Christmas watch simply because it's under. I think it's under an hour and twenty minutes. It's like an hour and fifteen or mm-hmm. something like that. So it's a it's a really easy breezy movie if you if you just want to put something on, especially while you're making a Christmas dinner. Uh, it just makes perfect sense. So it, for that reason, it makes a pretty good Christmas movie. It's a super simple watch, and you can really turn your brain off and just listen to the music Fair and enough. watch the anime. Okay. Um, the next Christmas movie I watched is one that I had never seen before. Actually, the only only real new Christmas movie I think that I got. Uh, there, there's two. Um, uh, we had the Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 version. I had never seen it before. What? Never seen the Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. I watched this on Christmas uh, during the day, uh, and as such, Manny, I'm not gonna lie, I was pretty drunk for a lot of it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so for that reason, I don't think I could give as in-depth a review on Miracle on 34th Street as I might like. That being said, it was just a good old time. It was really cute. It was uh, it was really fun. Uh, it was just really innocent for, very, for a lot of it. Very It innocent. had a... Uh, I, I like the dynamic with uh, the mom and her daughter, how uh, initially the mom just does not want her daughter believing in any sort of fairy tales or any sort of nonsense, having no sort of fun with imagination. And then Kris Kringle comes into their life and changes all that. The court case at the end is ludicrous and uh and imaginative and fun 
uh, I was just I was just smiling, having a rum and eggnog, watching Miracle on 34th Street. I had a, I had a grand old time. Good. I'm glad. I love that movie. I love that movie. I've never seen the remake of it either. I have. It doesn't quite carry the same magic for me, but it's, yeah. it's probably because, you know, I watched Miracle on 34th Street for probably 10 to 15 years, if not more, before the remake came out. So, mm-hmm. you know, remakes have to really offer something new or refreshing or be a significant improvement over the predecessor for them to for the, for them to supplant the original in my opinion so i don't i don't, I don't feel it did yeah yeah that, that all makes uh, all makes some good sense um some of the finer details may be lost on me for miracle on 34th street but the attitude that i had during it and the messaging and like you said the magic i like that word the magic conveyed in this movie very much stuck with me, so I gave it four stars. Nice. Oh, love it. Yeah. We are cruising right along. Uh, the next one, I went back to some of the old tried and true Christmas movies. Uh, you know I had to watch Elf, Manny. You know I had to do it. Uh, the I rare, think I actually the... watched Elf twice this year. Twice or three times. I'm not sure. It's usually one that I have to watch a couple of times each year because from people my generation... Whenever you hang out with some someone different in December, somebody will always inevitably request putting on Elf because it is, it is the first. I'm trying to think of a way to put this. It is arguably the first classic holiday movie that came out in my lifetime. Actually, I don't think that's really arguable. It is the first classic Christmas movie that I remember coming out. Let's put it that way. I this is the rare Will Ferrell film that I like. Yeah. And the, and I agree for for from your generation over the last twenty years. I'm gonna double check when something else came out, but this is a, this is one of the movies that I believe will be in Christmas rotations for a couple generations. Mm-hmm. You know, I also uh, now that I think about it, I don't have this written down, but I also watched the Netflix sort of docu series um the holiday movies that made us yeah did you happen to watch any of that I and did. i watched the episode on elf i watched the episode on elf i haven't watched the one on the night before christmas neither have i i haven't watched that one but i watched the episode on elf and it was really insightful and kind of crazy that john favreau with elf um it it's difficult to think of him as an unknown because he's attached to two of the biggest franchises in the world right now star wars and marvel but at the time, he was a relative unknown as a director, and uh, he just set out to make a holiday classic. That's what he said. That's what he set out to do right from the beginning to mm-hmm. make a timeless holiday classic. And in my opinion, he did it. Will Ferrell also at the time was not somebody who really starred in movies, which is also difficult to think about. Um, but he does an excellent job. Um, I'm a little bit more used to him as a crass individual in a lot of his movies, like. Talladega Nights and Step Brothers and uh, Anchorman. He just is really good at portraying raunchy humor, but Elf is obviously a kid's movie, so it's very absent in that. This is one that I grew up watching. I'll continue to watch year after year. If there's anything weak in Elf, I really think James Caan is just phoning it in the entire time. Everybody who's not Will Ferrell, essentially, doesn't seem to be having the best time in this movie. Um, I'll make one... Imp- dis- I'll make one- oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I had one disagreement. Sure, I go think, for it. I think Peter Dinklage is is yes at, 
is Great. doing a, ca- just- a fantastic legendary cameo by Peter Dinklage, in my opinion, in this movie is doing a great, great job. But in particular, James Caan is just fucking sleepwalking through this movie. Uh, you can argue it's kind of his character. He's a very reserved older man who doesn't really know how to show emotion to his estranged son. Uh, but he he really is not doing good work in this movie. So uh, Elf as a holiday classic uh, is near and dear in my heart. It gets a four because uh, it, it almost gets a five, but some of the performances outside of Will Ferrell really aren't up to snuff. That's fair. Um, I watched my favorite Christmas movie this year, a movie that is my 13th favorite film of all time, according to our top 20. Uh, it also came out the year before Miracle on 34th Street. It's It's a Wonderful Life. <sighs> Just a glorious movie and i don't know what it is i actually didn't really grow up watching this movie i watched it maybe once in the first 17 years of my life maybe twice i'm I'm not totally sure um it was when i moved away from home in my 20s uh that this movie really started to affect me at about 21 years old uh for some reason if you haven't seen the end of it's a wonderful life you might want to skip ahead because i'm about to spoil the ending three two one go fuck yourself the ending when he <laughs> reads the card and it says, uh, "No man who has friend or no man is poor who has friends," something like that. Yep. Uh, for some reason, that just gets to me as somebody who is a little bit isolated from his family, especially in the age of COVID right now. But the ending of this movie makes me tear up every time. It's so cheesy and optimistic and wonderful. Um, the movie does a really good job of portraying just what a disappointment uh, George Bailey is to himself. He had all of these dreams and aspirations of greatness and nothing in his life panned out the way he thought it was going to pan out. And uh, he's just, he's distraught and depressed and doesn't really realize how good he actually has it because of all the people he has in his life uh, who care about him. And that just, in this period of my life, just resonates with me so much. And I will continue to watch this year after year. Um, it's worth noting I actually own this on Blu-ray and I watched the color version for the first time this year. I don't think I'm going to be doing that again, not because it's bad or anything. The colorization of it is quite convincing. It just doesn't feel the same. This is a black and white movie, in my opinion, and I, I would like to like it to stay that way. So in the future, I'm going to be watching the black and white version, I think, each Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life usually gets a five from me, gets a five again this year. I fucking love this movie. Nice. I... Don't think I've ever seen it colorized. Yeah, I I hadn't. It was jarring at first. I kind of forgot about it halfway through. It it kind of blended in. But even so, I I think I'm just going to watch it black and white from here on out. Fair enough. I like it. Uh, I actually do have one more holiday movie I want to talk about. And this is actually kind of one I want to expand upon, uh, but not for good reasons. So, Manny, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, but my roommate... Jordan Spires, uh, is Jewish and as such celebrates Hanukkah. Uh Um, Uh she celebrates both Hanukkah and Christmas, I should say. Okay. Um, so one night on on the first night of Hanukkah, she said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to just watch eight crazy nights by Adam Sandler? I, I don't know if she hadn't seen it before or if it had been a while or I can't remember exactly what it was. I have seen eight crazy nights before when I was like 12, maybe once. And I was like, sure. Well, I remember having a chuckle or two when I was a preteen. 
let's see what Mr. Adam Sandler has to has to offer, even though his track record, as we both know, Manny, not the best. Not exactly the best. The best thing I can say about Eight Crazy Nights is that it made me want to make a Hanukkah movie. Because if this is one of the best Hanukkah movies that there is to offer, then there are no good ones. That is the best I can say about it. I, I now want to make a Hanukkah movie so that people of the Jewish faith do not have to undergo this atrocity every single year. Manny, not once did I laugh out loud at Eight Crazy Nights. Not one singular time in the admittedly short hour and 17 minute runtime. Uh, Adam Sandler has created one of the least likable protagonists in the history of film in Davy Stone, uh, a person who delights in the misfortune of others, a person who t- always takes it upon himself to do the wrong thing and somehow we are supposed to cheer for uh, because he's had a bit of a rough past. Uh, he's just one of the most disgusting human beings, and if I met him on the street in real life, um, oh, I'm trying to remember a fantastic expression right now, I wouldn't piss on him if he were on fire. He is just a just a, an atrocious mess of a human being. Uh, this is an animated movie, most likely to capture the essence of the holiday season uh, and capture the magic of it. Uh, the animation is not necessary, nor charming, and uh, they take shortcuts with it wherever they can. The animation is boring. It offers nothing of interest. And every character in this movie sucks. Every character is unlikable. Nobody says one funny thing through the entire goddamn movie. Not only is this among the worst movies I've ever seen in my life, Manny, it's among the top five worst things to ever happen to the Jewish people. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Number one, of course, being Sandy Koufax's early retirement from baseball. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Thank you I had that. I had portions of that written out because I needed to get that out in the world. Just an atrocious train wreck, an atrocity unto mankind. Many of you seen it, Crazy Nights? I don't think I have. No. You sound like you sound when you're going off about how you didn't laugh once. I had flashbacks of what men want. Not one singular time. I think I maybe blew air out my nose one time. Maybe I gave a little exa- like exasperated like. Huh. Or something like I I barely can remember, uh, but I definitely did not laugh out loud. Certainly not a belly laugh. Manny, uh, as you know, I've typed every movie of the last year into Letterboxd yes. uh, that I have watched and reviewed. I have not given a single movie a one-star rating. Not a one out of like I, somewhere between 200 and 300 movies. Manny, I am delighted here on the podcast today to give Eight Crazy Nights one star. <laughs> it, it brings me... It brings me infinite joy to bestow the first one-star rating for me on this podcast to Eight Crazy Nights. Just a just a horrible train wreck of a movie that I hope I never have to experience again. Is it possible to give zeros on Letterbox? I don't know if it is actually. I, I should can, look into you, that. I know you can give half like single half stars. Yes, you can, you can give half star out of five, but obviously we don't do half star ratings here. In in your rating system, Manny, in the Samuel and Manuel movie podcast rating system, are zero stars allowed? We've actually never discussed it. That we know there's hashtag no half points. Yes, uh, but uh, <laughs> zero stars has not been discussed on the podcast before. And honestly, this would be a contender. I think that's a. I think that's something you and I would have to dis to have a, a actually an actual deep discussion on. I think. 
I, for the time being, I'm more than content to give this the lowest rating I've ever given a movie on the podcast, which is a one. Uh, but it's something something we can talk about. All right. Okay. So that was my holiday movies, Manny. <laughs> yeah, I hate to end on a on a negative note for those ones, but I just I needed to get that off my chest because that was something else. Do you have anything else you want to say on Eight Crazy Nights, by the way? I sure don't. Okay, that's awesome. I am so happy that you don't. Uh, that's all of our holiday movies. Manny, what else did you get up to? Okay, so from here on out, you and I have now just uh, gone over our Christmas movie. So what we've discussed is we're just going to kind of trade movies back and forth. And if we have any crossover, we're just whoever brings it up is going to talk about it. Um, as you were uh, ranting and raving, I was just double-checking a couple things. And I actually realized I have a couple other movies I had to add to this list. So my list of movies I've watched has grown a smidge. Ooh. Yeah. It's grown. Okay. So but, you can, uh, I know you'll have a little bit more than me now. So if you want to go for, you can do a couple of twofers in there as we're alternating back uh, and forth. It's all, it's all good. It doesn't matter. I'm sure we're going to have some crossover anyways. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm actually going to start with a TV show. Yeah. Uh, I decided to watch. Uh, I was having a real hard time, uh, finding a movie that intrigued me. And I had actually bought this first season of this show on sale on Amazon. It was a blind buy. Never seen an episode in my life. And so I decided I and I and another thing, never heard anything about this show. Never heard wow. anything. Yes. And never. you just blind bought. Blind bought. Respect. Two reasons. Number one, my love of Kevin Costner. And number two, the writer, director, and showrunner is a gentleman that you and I love. And that man's name is Taylor Sheridan. Oh, wow. This TV show is called Yellowstone. And it is about a ranching family in Montana that face off against each other, as well as people and companies and stuff encroaching on their land. Now, Kevin Costner plays the patriarch of the family. And I think he has... I've watched, I finished the first season. I think it's only eight episodes. He has three sons and a daughter, and he has an almost I, 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 you can't quite call him an adoptive son, but it's someone he took under his wing early on, who is an actor that I really love by the name of Cole Hauser. You, you know who Cole Hauser is, right? He's, uh, I just navigated to his page. And I mean, he was in Goodwill Hunting. For some reason, I can't think of who Billy was right now. Billy is—he's—he's he's in the friend group. He's not Affleck. He's not Casey Affleck. He's the other guy. Gotcha. Okay. He's the one that that kind of built the car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Kay. guy who at the end is like running him through and says, "Yeah, the car's good. Car's good," and he's holding a beer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Cole Hauser. He. I. I really wish he had had a better movie career. This show kind of reminded me of a couple things and the first the first uh, uh, the first comparison I'm going to give does not equal the uh, the quality of what I'm about to say so but it's 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 a it's like Game of Thrones and what I mean is is that this uh, this family uh, which I, what's their name again? Uh, Dutton. The, the Dutton family. The Dutton family own like a massive portion of land in Montana. It's like the 
It's like the size of Rhode Island. It's like massive. It's like the size of Vancouver Island. This massive, yeah, massive, massive, massive amounts of property. And they are obviously incredibly wealthy. They have their two main antagonists, besides their infighting with each other, is this First Nations band that is right up along their property that wants the land back for their people. And it's led by the actor... Gil Birmingham? Yep. You remember him? I do remember him. He's in uh, a favorite of both of ours, Wind River. Yeah. Uh, he's he's in a variety of other things. He's in uh, Hell or High Water as well, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Uh, great actor. Somebody who, whenever he pops up, I, I really like his work. Yeah. And then they're also faced off against uh, Danny Houston's um, uh, uh, developer uh, called Dan Jenkins, who's trying to buy a property and build, like, this whole community and stuff like that. And the Duttons basically just want to have things the way they are. And they're the Dutton. The, the, the nice thing with the Duttons is they are, they're kind of anti-heroes. They're not, they have their own problems. They have their own faults. They also work the system. They're not, they're not good guys. They mm-hmm. definitely do some stuff that, skirts the law and in some cases completely is against the law it's obvious you know like you and i have are big fans of taylor sheridan he wrote sicario he wrote well you weren't as big a fan but he did write sicario 2 which is a movie i enjoyed a little bit more than you but Mm -hmm. he wrote and directed wind river and he wrote hell or high water and with Hell or High Water and Wind River, it's fairly apparent that maybe I I haven't looked at his, his Wikipedia page. He might have uh, Taylor Sheridan might have some uh, connection or ancestry with First Nations people because he seems to have an affinity towards them. In this show, the nice thing with it is it shows a lot of life on the res. And he seems to know what he's talking about because I, well, I, I technically do live on the reservation here in Kamloops mm. and I didn't grow up on it and I didn't, thankfully, I wasn't privy to the hardships that a lot of my brethren had to endure growing up in reservations. Now, thankfully in Kamloops, the reservation here isn't quite third world bad like it is in other parts of Canada and down the U.S., the nice thing with this show is it plays both sides of the reservation life. It does show that they don't have it easy, but Gil Birmingham's character, uh, whose name I forget, Thomas Rainwater? Thomas Rainwater. Okay, I was right. Yeah. Um, it shows him trying to do what's right for his people, but also being incredibly selfish. There's no... It's... I was really enjoying it, but I wasn't riveted. It's my my enjoyment of it is pretty much led by my enjo- my affinity for Taylor Sheridan's work and my unabashed love for Kevin Costner. He Kevin Costner isn't doing anything award-worthy in here, but 
I it's pretty rare that I will watch uh, something with Kevin Costner in it and not enjoy it. This show isn't quite good enough for me where I would recommend people to watch it. But if you are someone that kind of likes Western themes, it's not really a Western, but it is all about cowboys. It's, it's worth checking out. And I just found out that I think the whole four seasons are now three or four seasons are now on Amazon prime. Awesome. Um, yeah. If, if you're a fan of, Taylor Sheridan or if you're a Kevin Costner fan it might be worth checking out but I can I can guarantee you right now that there are a plethora of other television shows that you should probably watch before this when it comes to quality me personally like I said I'm just a big Kevin Costner fan I really like Taylor Sheridan and so I've enjoyed it but I'm not I finished season one I'm not anxious to start season two, so I might chip away at it over time. So that's Yellowstone. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at it. It does seem pretty interesting. I I know you like Kevin Costner a lot. Somebody I don't know if you touched on, who I just wanted to say is also in the show, is Wes Bentley. Oh, yeah, he plays one of the sons. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Jamie Dutton. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds interesting. I got to say, I mean, there's a lot of TV shows, I think, that are on my list ahead of this, but I I can definitely see myself checking it out down the line, especially because Taylor Sheridan is somebody that you and I both really respect as a, as an artist. Uh, He does have an upcoming movie this year uh, that he directed and, uh, and co-wrote called those who wish me dead. Uh, It's another neo-Western action film is how it's described. Fuck. I'm in. Uh, So so naturally it doesn't have a release date, but it, it just says release date 2021. Yeah, well, it's so probably... hopefully we're hopefully we're out of the era of pushing movies back. Doubtful. Hopefully we're done there. Knock on wood. All right, so that's that's a TV show I decided to check out. Uh, okay, it, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I started watching a new TV show as well uh, over the holidays. Uh, my girlfriend recommended to me the show Love, uh, which is I believe a Netflix original. It uh, it it is on Netflix. It's a Judd Apatow show. Uh, somebody I, that I enjoy, and I know you are sort of hit and miss with a couple of Apatow's works. I think in particular his early works you tend to prefer. Is that an accurate assessment? That is a very accurate assessment. Yeah, so like 40-year-old virgin era, and I honestly can't even blame your taste on that. Uh, but it's Judd Apatow's show. Uh, it ran, I think, from 2016 to 2018. It's only three seasons. Um, it's about uh, two main characters, Paul Rust and Jillian Jacobs. Uh, Jillian Jacobs is... Uh, probably better known as Britta from Community, uh, a show that I really like. Um, and Paul Rust, I don't know if I do know him. I, I saw him in one movie like forever ago. Um, I Love You, Beth Cooper was the movie that he was in forever ago. Just a kind of a shitty rom-com, <laughs> but I, I don't really know him from a whole lot else. Um, but uh, Love is a TV series on Netflix that I, I've been enjoying so far. I'm only about a season and a half in, so probably, I guess halfway through the entire run of the show. It feels very real-time. It's sort of about a meet-cute between two unlikely uh, two unlikely people, and uh, from what I can gather, the show is about them slowly falling in love. Uh, the entire first season probably takes place over, like, the course of a week, maybe even less. It, it feels very real-time. Like, each episode is roughly a day. Um, and it, I'm enjoying it so far. There's, there's some good comedic moments. If you like Judd Apatow, you'll probably like Love. 
I don't know if it's going to be one that I rewatch entirely. The comic relief character, uh, Birdie, who plays uh, Jillian Jacobs' character's roommate, uh, is really, really funny. She has a lot of great lines. Uh, Manny, I don't know if this is one that would be totally up your alley. It, it's just a solid rom-com. Uh, Mickey is the name of Jillian Jacobs' character. She is sort of a rough-around-the-edges, recovering addict, uh, sex addict, drug addict, alcoholic. She just... Uh, a laundry list of issues and uh paul rust plays gus who is a nerdy his job is an onset tutor so he is he is a tutor for child actors in this tv show called wichita which is a fake tv show made up for the show and the the show feels very real it feels very tangible these feel like real characters and they don't feel like a very compatible couple off the surface but they, they do have some damage both of them which uh which makes them fit together quite well um at times both leads can kind of just feel like shitty people again the character mickey is a recovering addict so she does some not so great things to a lot of people who care about her in her life which makes it difficult to like her sometimes from an audience perspective and uh gus is also no no saint either so it, it it's a little bit difficult to relate to these characters sometimes but uh i'm having having fun with the show got some good laughs and um, i'm looking forward to watching a little bit more love on netflix uh, pretty good so far sweet uh, I'm going to clump these two movies together. I decided to check out a couple movies. Uh, one I had always thought I had seen. Actually, both of these are movies I thought I had seen, and I realized upon as I started watching them, I'm like, I don't know anything that's going on. I've probably never seen these. Uh, one is a 1982 action comedy. Uh, the other one's a 1983 comedy drama. The action comedy is the movie that basically kick-started and began the buddy cop or the buddy film, and that's 48 Hours with Nick Nolte and uh, Eddie Murphy. Sam, this movie hasn't aged well. <laughs> and it is racist. It is really racist. And it is at times jaw-dropping to hear some of the things coming out of Nick Nolte's mouth. Mm. Uh, but this is the movie that launched Eddie Murphy into becoming a superstar. He's fresh off of his uh, Saturday Night Live stint. He, I think he's only like 20 years old in this movie, and granted he looks exactly the same because uh, he never ages. He... If you had told me that this was Eddie Murphy and he was 30, I'd be like, yeah, okay. I believe it. He doesn't look 20. He doesn't look young. He looks just like Eddie Murphy. And there is one scene where I, I'm i going to guess that it blew the mind of everybody that saw it and showed everybody what a superstar Eddie Murphy could be. And it's where the movie is... Uh, a hard-nosed cop reluctantly teams up with a wise-cracking criminal, temporarily paroled paroled to him in order to track down a killer. There's a scene where Eddie Murphy pretends he's a cop in this hillbilly bar to try and get some information. And I would have to guess, it, it almost seems like there was no script and Eddie was just allowed to say and do what he wanted. And it's just a joy to watch uh the movie is problematic but it was enjoyable again you 
you have to remember the context of the time. You know, it's 1982, so you know some people ra- were just racist back then. <laughs> people people were a little bit racist back then, and yeah, yeah it was. Thank God we've solved all those problems now. Yeah, uh, thank God none of that going on. Despite despite the incredibly horrible way that Eddie Murphy is treated in this movie by Nick Nolte. Uh, I still had a fairly good time. Uh, I actually am going to rate these movies because as you were rating yours, I was like, oh, I want to throw in ratings for mine. So uh, 48 Hours got a three for me. It's not sure. – It's not one. if you see it on, look at it. Look at it as a time capsule movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other movie I saw was the 1983 uh, comedy drama movie The Big Chill. And this was actually nominated for Best Picture. And I had always heard this movie was good. It's got an incredible cast. Uh, Tom Berger, Glenn Close, Jeff, uh, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, uh, Meg Tilly, Joe Beth Williams. It's, uh, it's a group of seven former college friends gather for a weekend reunion at a South Carolina vacation home after the funeral of another one of their college friends. And... I can see why in 1983 it was nominated for Best Picture. This movie wouldn't even sniff that nowadays. But it's uh, this is the movie. This is the kind of movie that plays basically it plays to boomers. It's it's about you know it's about it's about the age you know it's it's these people are in their probably mid 30s maybe late 20s, early 30s to mid 30s, they've all had their careers. Someone that meant a lot to them has passed away and they're reconnecting with their college friends who they've somewhat stayed in touch with. Some have stayed really close, others have not. But they get together for this weekend and they and they and those bonds reform. And it's kind of kind of looking back on your past and reconnecting with the people that were important to you that... At the time in your life, in your early 20s, if I look back, it's kind of when I started to form the most important relationships of my life. Most of the people that I am closest with are the people I met at that time of my age. So watching this, I could understand a lot of the way that the characters were feeling. The movie's fine. It doesn't hold up well in just that it's not maybe it's un it's a little unrelatable considering that it's what is that 37 years old is that right is that math right holy fuck it is uh 38 we're in 2021 manny right well yeah tech well <laughs> this movie was released in september of 83 so it's probably closer to 30 okay technicalities. whatever, whatever. <laughs> um the movie was fine i'm glad i watched it i don't think it's one that i would like in all honesty, Sam, I don't think you would enjoy it at all. I yeah. think there might be some scenes that you would enjoy, but I, I think you would probably find it quite boring. It's I just, generally enjoy Jeff Goldblum. Does that help me out? He's not really Jeff Goldblooming it up. He's not okay. He's not doing what you're expecting from... He's not doing Nature uh, uh, Finds a Way? No, he's not. Okay. It's... Yeah, the, the movie was fine. It was fine. I gave it a three. Okay. What you got? Um, 
as you well know, I spend a decent amount of time watching kids movies now uh, just because my uh, my girlfriend and her sister tend to like to watch kids movies. Both of I mean, even even my girlfriend's sister is adult age, but they just like revisiting movies from their childhood quite a lot. And hell, there are movies from my childhood, too, so I don't mind it. Um, the Emperor's New Groove from 2000, Ooh. kind of an underrated, forgotten Disney 2D animated movie um, starring Stay With Me. David Spade. <laughs> don't don't shut off the podcast just yet. David Spade, John Goodman, Eartha Kitt, Patrick Warburton. Um, if there's one reason to watch this movie, it's going to be for the banter between Eartha Kitt and Patrick Warburton as Yzma and Kronk. They're hilarious characters. There's, there's some really good writing for their characters and some fun animation as well. Um, the character of Cusco... Uh, this seems to be a common theme in my movie reviews tonight. Uh, just not a very likable protagonist. Has some good lines. Is is generally okay, but is just such a dick to everybody around him that he borders on being irredeemable. Uh, John Goodman is also doing some okay work as Pacha. It's a pretty... Uh, it, it, I don't want to say formulaic, but it, it's it's just a pretty basic kids movie about... Uh, it's essentially the hero's journey of a guy. Uh, well, he's turned into a llama and then remembers uh, and, through, and realizes that he shouldn't be an asshole. It, it's it's almost overly cheesy in its character arc. A man needs to be turned into a llama to learn what it means to be human. That that would be the tagline if somebody super cheesy was writing it. Um, so it, it's 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 fun for the family. If you got kids, you can watch it. Or if you're around my age, if you were born in the nineties, you probably remember this movie fondly like I did. It hasn't necessarily aged super well. I don't generally like David Spade. He's not incredibly irritating in this movie, which is the best I can say for him and basically anything. But if you are going to watch this movie, the highlight again, Patrick Warburton is a voice actor and just an actor in general who I really like. He's really funny. Uh, you might know him as Putty from Seinfeld. He also voices Joe on Family Guy and a number of other characters and another of, a number of other uh, TV shows and movies. He's a really, really talented voice actor, in my opinion. And uh, Eartha Kitt as Yzma. Their banter between each other is really funny and still holds up well, in my opinion. Uh, it's got some problems. It's a little boring. It's only an hour and 18 minutes. It's worth a go. Manny, if you if you wanted to give this a go with Maya, I think you could at least find something in it. I know you probably won't because David Spade, but uh, Emperor's New Groove gets three for me. And that might have a little bit of a Homer bias just because it's one that I grew up on, but it, I still think it's pretty good. I've seen this. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I haven't seen it probably since it came out. I I remember not hating it. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I, I, I'd probably give it a three. I'd be totally opening to revisiting this for sure. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it, parts of it still hold up pretty well. Uh, like I said, pretty simplistic messaging, obviously, with it being a kid's movie. Uh, but yeah, the, vo the voice performances are pretty solid and uh, some, some pretty decent writing, relatively creative. You don't really see a lot of kids' movies or a lot of movies in general really set in uh, the Mayan. I think it's the Mayan civilization. It's either yes. the Mayans or the Aztecs, I can't remember. Oh. But you don't really see a lot of movies set in this part of the world in this time. So uh, it's it's refreshing. So I should do this, a double feature with this in Apocalypto? <laughs> yeah, de both with Maya, too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely both with Maya. <laughs> well, speaking of empires, I watched a 2000 film about what a lot of people used to refer to as Camelot. 
and that's the JFK administration, the White House. Uh, this movie is called 13 Days. It's from the year 2000. It's about the Kennedy administration struggling to contain the Cuban Missile Crisis. This movie stars Kevin Costner, Bruce Greenwood. Uh, Bruce Greenwood is, is playing JFK. And Kevin Costner is playing his chief of staff, I think is chief of staff. Uh, Kenny O'Donnell. No, he's a special consultant to the uh, to the president because his brother, Robert Kennedy, would have been his chief of staff. Anyways, it's just about... It's a it's a retelling of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it kind of gives you an idea of how close the world came to World War Three, and it's kind of harrowing. This movie is lifted for me once again by my affinity and love for Kevin Costner, who is doing one of the all time worst Boston accents, and but it's also lifted by Bruce Greenwood, who is a character actor that I thoroughly enjoy. It's pretty rare that he's done a movie or been in a movie, and I think that he's not good. He seems to have this little bit of gravitas to him that I really look at and admire and love. I just, uh, I really like him as an actor. And the movie, for me, is very enjoyable. It's a it's a nice little kind of drama thriller and I've never really researched on how accurate it is to what actually happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I have a good time watching this movie, and it's one that I would recommend for people. Uh, this is a four for me, but it's probably raised a whole point because of my love for Kevin Costner. So 13 Days, a nice little political, historical thriller Um worth checking out if you ever see it but it's pretty rarely ever on anything streaming getting that costner point a couple of movies in there Are yeah you just on, a, on a costner bender i i'm i i love kevin costner i can't explain it there's I, another friend of mine uh what's his oh, gosh i can't remember his last name we used to play ball hockey together he actually lives in the coast um him and i both love kevin costner we used to just just gush over our love of kevin costner you know, uh, your intro to that movie reminded me of a movie that I didn't list. I, I forgot to enter it on Letterboxd and therefore didn't have it listed out, so I'm going to talk about it now. You said, speaking of empires. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to go Empire Strikes Back for a second. And I know. I, I, realized, saw, I saw your hey, face. I watched The Empire Strikes Back <laughs> in the last month. I completely forgot. It was sort of, uh, it was on in the background a little bit, uh, but I... I can't it, it's not even a movie i can really watch in the background within 10 minutes in i'm fully engrossed the empire strikes back um i just wanted to put on something while i was while i was working on something else mm -hmm. and then inevitably wind up watching the empire strikes back this is one that i wound up having on my top 20 of all time yeah uh, i am going to navigate back to the app really quickly just to see i had it 19th uh, mm. of my top 20 of all time uh, this is just a, a brilliant movie still one that holds up super well um it's one that we actually reviewed this year we as did. well. Uh, we did review it, and maybe we'll be talking about it again sometime soon? Question mark. Uh, so I, I won't. I won't say too too much about it, but. Okay. God, there's still so much to like about The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, the plot twist in the middle, which. If you haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back, or you haven't heard anything about pop culture ever. Uh, turn off the podcast. I'm going to spoil it. 
uh, the plot twist of uh, the Luke's fatherhood uh, still just gets an audible gasp from me. It's still <laughs> such an epic moment up on the walkway. It's so cool. And this is just a movie I have so much fun geeking out on. It, it just the the epicness of Star Wars, the epicness of Darth Vader as a character is so apparent in this movie. Darth Vader, if you watch only Star Wars A New Hope, if you only watch the original Star Wars movie, Darth Vader, potentially controversial opinion alert, not even that cool. Like, he's a cool villain, but he doesn't actually get to be Darth Vader until The Empire Strikes Back. He doesn't really have all that much to do as a character until The Empire Strikes Back. And the reveal that this badass motherfucker is Luke's dad is it still is awesome <laughs> it's still a great one of the greatest moments in the history of cinema and then the entire supporting cast of this movie is doing fantastic work the the chemistry between uh between Leia and Han is so apparent they have so much romantic chemistry it's insane probably because Harrison Ford and Carrie Fush Fisher were actually doing it on set uh <laughs> that is something that was revealed and I think Carrie Fisher's book uh, right before she passed, uh, but uh, just still so much fun to watch The Empire Strikes Back. I was really happy to give it a watch. Um, it's it's so good top to bottom, and I'm not going to say all that much more because we're going to have uh, going to have more stuff to say about it uh, in an upcoming episode. Well, <clears throat> speaking of evil empires, oh, we're we're staying on this theme. By the way, five stars. Didn't think I needed to say that, but continue. I knocked off one of the movies for our 1995 rewatch or retrospective, and that's the 1995 crime drama film Casino. Oh, cool. Uh, I have seen Casino once with my dad when I was probably too young to have seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, eh, probably 12 or 13 years old, somewhere in there. Uh, but I haven't seen it since, so I'm interested to revisit this. This is definitely should be near the top of your list to get mm -hmm. to knock off for our 1995 retrospective but i think we got about two and a half months maybe even three before we got to get to the the retrospective episode so you still got lots of time yeah uh, this is uh, i always remember enjoying this movie i always felt it was a little long it is two hours and 58 minutes there's definitely some stuff you could cut out but it's so thoroughly enjoyable. It's a Martin Scorsese film with De Niro and Pesci. It's absolutely a brilliant movie that I think is completely overshadowed by Goodfellas. Comes out five years after Goodfellas, it, which also was a Scorsese film. So I think that this doesn't quite get the recognition it deserves. And it has a unbelievable performance from Sharon Stone who is or was like she was my Charlize back then uh, she is absolutely amazing in this movie and as are De Niro as is Pesci as is a lot of the other people in this movie I really do enjoy this movie a lot and yeah, it's it's just uh, it's just a, it's just a great movie. It's basically exactly what you think it is. It's just you know Scorsese doing another gangster film, and you really can't go wrong when he does that. So Casino, four stars for me. 
Cool. Uh, I actually, I, I'm, I, I already had this one written down, but I'm reordering the, the way I want to talk about things. Because yep. since I talked about The Empire Strikes Back, I now have to go into uh, a movie I've been wanting to revisit because I've only seen it once in theaters and I haven't seen it since. This was back in 2014, I believe, if my memory serves. Everybody tells me that Rogue One is better than I remember it being. And I remember it just being fine. Manny is currently pointing vigorously at himself. Manny keeps telling me Rogue One is better than I remember it being. So I revisited it. We went back to Rogue One. We went back to take this journey with Jin or so. And we went back to take this journey with... Cassian Andor. Cassian Andor and Galen or so. And it's a fun little world. And there's some there's some interesting things happening. And the world of Star Wars is expanded even more, which... Uh, if you've been listening to us talk uh, on and off again about The Mandalorian, you know that the expansion of the Star Wars universe and the fleshing out of all these different characters and cultures and all this other stuff is really interesting to me, and I'm glad that Rogue One continues on that. It's still just okay, ah. in my opinion. It is a solid Star Wars entry. I would not bash anyone for liking this movie a lot, but it's still just fine. Forrest Whitaker is not that good. He's doing some really weird shit in yeah. this movie. Forrest Whitaker was given free reign. Thankfully, he's not in the movie all that much, but he was clearly given free reign to just do whatever weird shit he wanted with his character. The first act of this movie is... I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not good. It is not good, the first act of this movie. It jumps all over the place. The pacing is weird. And I don't care about anyone in the first act of this movie. It's it's tough. And I think that's what brings it down for me. Because they clearly stick the landing of whatever it was they were trying to do. The ending, the, the final act of Rogue One is awesome. It's it, unbelievable. It's, the, it, it's really, really good. And by the way, whenever I tell anyone that Rogue One was only okay, first thing anybody ever says to me is, well, what about the Darth Vader scene? Yes, obviously the Darth Vader scene is fucking incredible. Obviously that is the case. That is two minutes at the end of the movie, if that. Maybe a minute at the end of the movie. So I don't accept that as an argument for why Row 1 is excellent. Uh, the back third of this movie, though, really, really is good. Ugh, uh, so the, good. The, the extraction of the, of the Death Star plans uh, is clearly excellent. Um, the... It's not de-aging. The... Facial recreation, I guess, of uh, Carrie Fisher and I don't know the other actor's name. Uh, Peter Cushing. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher are recreated digitally in this movie. Six years later, has already aged poorly. It's It doesn't look very good. Um, but Rogue One suffers from a messy, messy, messy first act and sticks the landing at the end, in my opinion. Manny has that. Uh, I'll take it. Okay. Three stars for Rogue One. Okay. So I got all those movies prior out of the way. And with the exception of one film left to talk about, which I'm going to talk about back to back because the other movie, well, not right now. The rest of these movies are 2020 films. As I'm oh, trying okay. to watch stuff to get ready for our end of the year top 10 list. So the first one I'm going to talk about is... A, I think it's Finnish? I don't even know. Huh. I guess I should look it up. Anyways, it's a foreign film. Finnish, Swedish. I Scandinavian? Guess it, Scandinavian, whatever it is. 
hold on. Let me see. He... Uh, Denmark. So Danish? Danish. Okay. I'm just delicious. Ass- I'm just uh, I'm just assuming that because uh, the lead in this movie is Mads Mikkelsen. I knew that before. As soon as you said Danish <laughs> lead, I was like, oh, it's got to be Mads. Yeah, and this movie is called uh, Another Round. The I think it, the Danish title is Druk. Uh, and this movie was one that's made a couple top ten lists, and so I decided to check it out. Uh, The premise is four friends, all high school teachers, test a theory that they will improve their lives by maintaining a constant level of alcohol in their blood. Now, that premise alone, which I had heard, I was like, oh, this sounds funny. (laughs) This movie, at times, is funny and then stops being funny. And starts to show you the true repercussions of what happens if you decide to do this. And it goes to some, at times, dark. And at times, humorous. And at times, very touching places. Mads Mikkelsen has two scenes, in particular, that are worth the price of admission. One is where they... It's in a restaurant. I won't spoil. It's in a restaurant... And it's where him and his friends first kind of discuss the idea. And he has this very real and very emotional scene. And then I'm not going to, I won't spoil it, but the ending with Mads Mikkelsen is just amazing. Uh, Amazing. This movie, very enjoyable. I can see why it's on so many top 10 lists. I can see why... Uh, a lot of people are enjoying this movie. There's a lot to enjoy. This is the type of movie that I can see very soon being remade for an American audience because this mm. this is it's 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 in there again I'm assuming it's Danish. Uh but it it is it's a subtitled film. But this is the type of premise that would just allow an American remake to have a lot more fun with. I don't know if they go to the same emotional depth and some of the darker stuff that this film gets into with this, but an American remake of this would for a lo- allow for a lot of fun. I I think that you would enjoy this, Sam. I gave this movie a three. I just added it to my watch list. It sounds interesting. I, I, th- I do think it's one that you would like. Uh, mm-hmm. I did. I just re- I rented it. Uh, it was uh, it was wor- it was one hundred percent worth the rental. Uh, I had a re- I had a really great time with this movie, and like I said, there are two scenes with Mads Mikkelsen that, on their own, are were worth the price of the rental for me. But as a whole, I I had a really good time with this movie. Hmm. Uh, just a quick note: uh, the country on IMDb is listed as Denmark, Sweden, Netherlands. Okay. So I Denmark listed first, I guess technically by default makes it a Danish film. You okay with that? A hundred percent. I don't, unfortunately, don't know their language, so I was just reading subtitles. All right, fine by me. All right. Um, I watched a movie that you and I talked about. I think you had. I think you had watched it, and we talked about it in what we've been watching. And I said it was one that I wanted to revisit. Uh, it is a 
what what is what I consider to be an underrated sports movie, and that is Goon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, still so much fun, Manny. The hockey sequences in Goon look better than hockey in just about any other sports movie I've seen. It looks spectacular. Again, the opening, not not quite the opening third, maybe like the opening 10, 15 minutes. Jay Baruchel, who is somebody that I actually enjoy comedically, gets pretty annoying. Agreed. He is in in my opinion in my opinion, he's in the movie almost the exact right amount, which is very little. He he's I think the first scene he's in, I laughed. Is that how he's using all this profanity and he's really crass, uh, not aware of social cues kind of friend. And then by about the third scene he's in, you're like, okay, this is like this better not be what the movie is. Yeah. He he gets old awfully quickly. Once Jay Baruchel's out of the movie, fantastic sports movie in my opinion. Uh, Doug Glatt is a really interesting, really sweet character. Yes, he's a gentle giant. He's just a touch too stupid to do anything other than beat people up for a living. Uh, but he is uh, he, he's a really touching, warm, loving character who, at, at his core, really doesn't want to even hurt people. He's just good at it. So he's, in case you haven't guessed from the title or in case you haven't seen the movie, uh, those who are listening, uh, it, it's a movie about a guy who's hired for a minor sports team to be a goon. Um, the IMDb description is, Labeled as an outcast by his brainy family, a bouncer overcomes long odds to lead a team of underperforming misfits to semi-pro hockey glory, beating the crap out of everything that stands in his way. And this is a movie that is far better than it sounds in that description. It is a movie that I put on originally, probably about six, seven years ago, thinking, okay, this is just going to be like something dumb that a friend recommended to me, I think. And I was like, ah, this is going to be kind of stupid, but whatever, I'll check it out. It surprised the hell out of me. It has a lot of heart. The, uh, the hockey sequences look great. The uh, antagonist, who is played by Lev Schreiber, Ross Ray. Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable a performance that is far too good for this movie and yes. a character which is far too well written for this movie yes the, there's a scene that you and i talk about regularly in this movie in a diner which is like what the fuck is this scene doing in this movie it is too good it's too good for this plot it's a conversation between ross ray and doug glatt and it is an excellent scene it's it's a scene of Two adversaries who are about to go on the ice and beat the shit out of each other. And they just communicate a mutual respect and an understanding for what it is that they're doing. And Ross Ray imparts a little bit of wisdom to to Glatt. And it's, fuck man, is this movie ever good. Uh, again, it does not open the best, but by the end, I am... I'm having a fantastic time with Goon. It's only an hour 30. I promise if you put this on, it is better than it sounds. Get through the Jay Baruchel bullshit stuff at the beginning and then have yourself a great time. It's a great underdog sports movie. And I have have a really good time with Goon. I'm with you 100%. I'd seen this a long time ago and then put it on recently and was just completely sucked in. I had a fucking good time. And yeah, Lev Schreiber is acting way better than this movie deserves to have him acting. There, He is an incredibly... I shouldn't say incredibly. This character is much better than what this movie deserves him to be. 100%. It is, and that yeah, that diner scene is 
infinitely better than what this movie deserves. I, I had such a great time. This is a movie that I think I'm going to end up revisiting fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. It was just so much fun. And the, yeah. the, it, the I, I love the way it ended. I love the big the big finale. I just had a great time. And yeah, I agree. The action on the ice is one of the best renditions of hockey I've seen on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a uh, this movie was better than it deserved to be. I, I agree. Uh, hockey fans will also like the appearance of George Laroque. And this is old school hockey because George Laroque, I don't think, has played in the NHL in like a decade plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, people will like the appearance of him. Uh, the fights look really good. Uh, the dialogue is excellent. The locker room is filled with all of these caricatures of different nationalities who play hockey, which I don't actually think go over the line a huge amount. Like one of the the, the star player is uh, uh, Xavier Laflamme is the guy's Laflamme is the guy's name, uh, and he's he's a Frenchman. There's a couple of like Quebecois jokes thrown in there, but none of these guys are parodies of themselves per se there is some comedy thrown in on their nationality the russians are made fun of for being russian he's made fun of for being he's called a frenchie a couple of times but uh ross ray in particular who is a newfie in the movie is not a caricature of himself i like how reserved they are with like using where these people come from as the butt of the joke Mm -hmm. but it's it's definitely present but it's not like the focus. The the it, it, they find the comedy in other places. Ross Ray in particular it would have been so easy to just be like, hey, this guy's a newfie. Let's make him talk really funny because this is a comedy movie. And I'm really glad they refrained from doing that. And it, the movie's a lot smarter and a lot better because of it. Uh, a lot of good things to say about Goon. If I have one other nitpick, just besides Jay Baruchel kind of being unlikable in the beginning of this movie, uh, the love story between Doug and uh, I can't remember his love interest name even. Uh, Eva, uh, between Doug and Eva, not interesting. Uh, don't don't really care about it. It's uh, it, it, I, 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 I don't know. It doesn't really do it for me. I could have done without it in the movie. I understand why they put it in, but the love story is, in my opinion, kind of secondary. Fair enough. Okay, uh, Goon gets four stars. Fantastic. I think that's what I gave it. Let me just quickly double check. I I'm pretty sure that you did. I remember when you when you gave it. Uh, yep. When you gave it the rating, I'm pretty sure I echoed your sentiment. Four stars beautiful all right i decided to finish off a trilogy that i had been waiting numerous years for them to do and that is bill and ted face the music i was super excited to hear when they were remaking this as bill and ted's excellent adventure was one of my favorite movies uh, as a kid which i saw in the theaters And then Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a movie that a lot of people really dislike, but I do like it. And then it took them another, what, 30 years to make Bill and Ted face the music? And so I was looking forward to it. And I blind bought the Blu-ray, put it in, and started watching it. And the first five minutes, I was like, fuck i'm on board this is just take like the time traveling telephone booth that they have this is taking me back and as the movie continued i realized that one of the actors is much like the phone booth that's in the movie phoning in his performance 
And that's Keanu Reeves, hmm. who I kind of wish he had went back and watched the first two movies to see the character that he had created, which is a fun one. He is literally, it almost looks like he's just reading off of cue cards. He is so disinterested in being in this movie, and it breaks my heart because Alex Winter redoing his role as Bill S. Preston Esquire is he slips right back into that fucking role and is carrying this film on his shoulders. It is, it was a fucking joy to watch Bill come back to life. I had a really good time. This movie goes to ridiculous places, much like the first two do. So if you enjoyed the first two at all, I think you'll enjoy Bill and Ted Face the Music. I did have a good time, but I was really heartbroken to see Keanu. It, it, it almost looked like he was one of those people that was like, I'm too good for this now. But knowing the type of person, or I shouldn't say knowing, from everything I hear about Keanu, it doesn't make me believe that he is actually that kind of person but he just wasn't matching the effort of the other people in this movie. And it was really sad because Alex Winter is, is perfectly doing his character once again. There was no zero seams. I had no reservations whatsoever that this is the same Bill from the first two movies, just 30 years older, where Keanu's rendition of Ted, it, he's not acting the same. And it made me sad, but it didn't diminish my enjoyment of the movie. There are some really good moments. There are uh, about 16 dozen plot holes, but I don't give a fuck because that's not what this movie's about. This movie's about watching it and having fun. And I will say, I think one of the other reasons that Keanu's poor performance kind of stuck out is because his daughter... Uh, played by Bridget Lundy Payne. Uh, she's literally playing Ted. Their daughters are pretty much playing them. It's like he, they raise their daughters to be little versions of them. And so she is, she, I guarantee you, this Bridget Lundy Payne girl watched the first two movies and she's playing the character of Ted perfectly. She does the same. She has the same facial expressions, the same body movements. She's someone that actually put in the work. Keanu, you should have taken notes from the girl that played your daughter. Uh, I had a good time with this movie. I will probably end up revisiting it down the line. And, yeah, I gave Bill and Ted a three. A three. Okay. Yeah, I think I've seen uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure maybe one time. I think I watched it in socials class when I was in high school, maybe. Um, yeah, I haven't revisited this trilogy even a little bit, so maybe it's maybe it's time that I do because I know a lot of people uh, hold this near and dear this trilogy, especially the, especially the first movie. The first movie is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, in yeah. my in my opinion, it it's but I grew up with it, so it it has that um, it has that whole thing. It has the whole nostalgia. It has the whole growing up with it, going for it. So it's just a movie that I, I know that I'm going to like forever. 
Uh, so my girlfriend and I were looking for just some movie to watch on Netflix one night, and we landed on this movie called A Simple Favor, um, which I think I think she had seen before, and uh, and just said it would be just a, a quick and easy one to to maybe put um, to, to put on. And she, uh, if anything, it was an it, it should be an exercise in what happens when you have expectations for a movie. So I was fully prepared to go into this movie blind, and she did say that it was a thriller with a similar plot to Gone Girl. That was that was what my expectation was of this movie. And she would tell me after we watched this movie that as, she, as soon as she said that, she realized she shouldn't have because it's not really an accurate portrayal of what the movie is. So I went in not expecting Gone Girl quality, but sort of Gone Girl, Gone Girl tone. Okay. Gone Girl, like, that sort of, I was expecting that sort of tone. And uh, I did not get that. Uh, for those who don't know, this movie stars Anna Kendrick. Um, the plot synopsis per IMDb is Stephanie is a single mother with a parenting vlog who befriends Emily, a secretive upper class woman who has a child at the same elementary school. When Emily goes missing, Stephanie takes it upon herself to investigate. This movie is closer to a comedy than it is to a crime movie. It does have elements of both, but it is definitely heavier on the comedy side. Uh, and for that reason, I think I was just completely thrown for a loop. I had my expectations up for one thing. It wound up being another. I enjoy Anna Kendrick, I guess. She uh, she has a certain charm to her, which in a certain time and place can be can be favorable for a movie. If you're the kind of person who likes Anna Kendrick's stick, if you just like the, the high energy, sort of pitch perfect uh, energy that she gives to a movie, you'll probably like a simple favor. It didn't really do it for me. It... it Partially has to do with my expectations, and partially uh, it just the plot doesn't really make a ton of sense. The, the movie gets really obsessed with its own double crosses and plot twists and reversals. It gets really obsessed with itself <laughs> towards the end of this movie to the point that it just kind of becomes nonsensical. The uh, the the main uh, the supporting actor. Oh man, I'm trying to find the the guy's name. I think it is. No, it's not Nikki. Oh man, the the love interest in this movie, Blake Lively's husband, uh, whose name I can't find right now. It, it doesn't really matter. He is just not interesting as a person. He is wallpaper. <laughs> he is wallpaper in this movie. Uh, he borders on being an asshole a lot of the time. I guess one of my main problems with this movie is that his allegiance through this movie is very unclear. It's very unclear whose side he's on, who he's actually in cahoots with. Like it, the movie just gets obsessed with all these double crosses and becomes kind of a clusterfuck, to be honest. It has some solid comedic moments at time. I definitely had a couple of laughs. It's directed by uh, Paul Feig, so it, it definitely it was in some some semi-competent hands. But uh, yeah, if if you like Anna Kendrick, you probably like it. But it, I either I was not in the right mood for it. I had the wrong expectations. Maybe I don't know. But it, uh, it was kind of a fucking mess. <laughs> I, I went in expecting intricacy, and I got the opposite of that. So uh, a simple favor got a two, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, so I I did a double bill on was it was it Christmas Day or it might have been Boxing Day. No, it would have been Christmas. It would have been Christmas. Uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, but I decided to uh, take the plunge, and I did a double bill of Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 1984. Was super excited to revisit Wonder Woman as it was a movie I loved, and 
I rewatching it was an absolute joy. This movie is so much fun, and I didn't have as big a problem with the third act as I did uh, the first time or the first few times watching it. While it's still the weakest part of the movie, the chemistry between Gal Gadot and Chris Pine is undeniable. And so I watched it, and then I dropped my $30 to watch Wonder Woman 1984, fired it up, and was uh, disappointed by the movie. It has some uh, massive plot hole problems. There are a lot of other problems that people have been throwing at it. I'm not really willing to to dive into them too much. Sam, have you seen this? No, I haven't uh, haven't checked it out. To be honest, I haven't been too motivated cuz I haven't heard too many great things about it. I, I might check it out when it drops down in price inevitably, but I'm not paying 30 for it. Yeah, it was uh, I won't lie. I think I probably would have enjoyed this more if I'd seen it on the big screen. I think mm-hmm. watching it on my TV, I I, I didn't uh I I just it was just lacking. It was just lacking a lot. The chemistry between Chris Pine and Gal Gadot uh, once again was uh, enjoyable. Uh, spoilers for Wonder Woman. Three, two, one, go fuck. Uh, I'm not spoiling 1984. I'm spoiling the first one. So spoilers for Wonder Woman. Three, two, one, go fuck yourself. Uh, Chris Pine dies in Wonder Woman, and I was yeah. ver- I was very curious as to how they bring him back. And I had no problem with the way they brought him back in this one. Now, a lot of people do, and a lot of people have a lot of problems with the ramifications and the moral conundrum of the way he's brought back. Now, for me, uh, like I said, I'm not, I won't, well, it's not a spoiler to, de- to determine it, but I- I'm like, you're just, you're just purposely trying to find things wrong. You really, which just... we would never, we would never do that. Yeah, but this is getting that. If the movie was a little bit better, and the other major plot holes weren't as bad, I don't think people would be ripping this movie apart as much as they are. But once one movie has a, a kind of a couple glaring problems, now they start really fine. They're going through the movie with a fine tooth comb to see what else they can rip apart. That's the way it feels to me. I th- yeah. If a movie has a big problem that kind of detracts from the overall enjoyment, then I feel that people really start to try and they start pulling at the threads. What else yeah. can we find? What's wrong with it? And I'm kind of, I'm really kind of starting to get sick of it. it. It's a fucking movie, and watch it, enjoy it. I, I kind of went off on a on a really huge and honestly an, an angry rant with uh, one of my friends, Chad, because he called me up hearing how bad this movie was and he wanted to know what I thought. And I kind of really went off, and the gist of my rant was this, is all these people that are online complaining about Wonder Woman 1984, these are the same people that would have, if, it, if theaters were open, no pandemic, they all would have went. They all would have, this movie would have opened to, who knows, 100, 200 million dollars over the, over the opening weekend. And it would have ended up making probably close to a billion dollars or at very minimum probably 500 to 700 million dollars and all these people are going to shit on it yet these are the same people that won't go see something like wind river 
They're going to complain about these blockbusters not being good, but they're not going to go to the theaters to support, a.k.a., or example, good movies. They're not going to go see Sicario in the theater. They're not going to go see Hell or High Water in the theater. So all they're going to do is they're going to drop their money, spend it on these big budget blockbusters, which are now run by conglomerates and corporations. They don't care. They're not run by artists. They're, they're making these movies to make money, not to make art. And so now you've, all you're doing is you're showing them you're willing to go see these blockbusters whether they're good or not. So what are they going to do the next time? They're going to make another one of these. It doesn't have to be good because you're going to go see it anyways. It's this, Just think of all those Transformer films. Basically universally reviled. There obviously have some fans, but for the most part people hate them. Yet they continue to make money. So why do they keep making Transformer films? Because you guys keep going. You guys, people out there are not going to see the good films, the movies that are actually touch your heart, make you think, or actually full of good acting and good cinematography. Those movies are now being pushed towards streaming services. That's why you get movies like The Irishman on Netflix. No corporation is going to give Martin Scorsese $150 million to make a movie about old gangsters. Not going to happen. Because they would not get a return on investment. If you're tired and all you want to do is shit on these blockbusters, then stop going to them at the movie theaters and start supporting good film. Rant over. Mike, drop. End of story. I'm just, I'm tired of people complaining about all these blockbusters and yet they continue to go to them and don't go to the movies that need their money. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's really that's really too true. We we talk about it all the time, or less so these days, because I don't know about you, I haven't been to the theater since Tenet. Uh, but it's really it's really a shame that people will blindly go to see the Rise of Skywalker <laughs> just because it has Star Wars put on it, and I'm one to talk. I went to go see it. Mm-hmm. But these people who complain that that Star Wars is so fucking terrible now will not go to see independent movies they won't go to see anything other than blockbusters so they won't uh, they won't go see eighth grade they won't go see book smart yep right so i guess the the takeaway here is speak with your wallet that's that's the takeaway here if you want better movies pay to see better movies (laughs) that's that's really as simple as that yeah um so wonder woman 1984 i didn't hate it and i can understand a lot of the complaints, a lot of the complaints about the major parts, I get it. There are some really bad plot holes. There's some really big problems with it, but I had a good enough time. I gave Wonder Woman 1984 a three. It wasn't. Ba- it, it was nowhere near bad enough for me to give it a two. That it didn't even approach two. It was. I will definitely rewatch it. Uh, I do. Th- the sad part for me, uh, for Woman or Woman 1984, is there was no real reason to set it in 1984. Uh, mm. It's. I can un. So I'm gonna. I'm just gonna quickly go into this, and I can understand why people enjoyed or would hate the things that I'm about to say. I wish were in the movies, but there's no really great big '80s music in this movie at all. There's nothing that really distinguishes it for being in 1984, except for the fact that it's telling you it's in 1984. There's a little bit of things about it with the pol- politics at the time, like the Cold War plays a big part in this movie. But other than that, like there's 
they do have some jokes with the fashion at the time, which is always fun to do, but it's not integral to the plot. There's no real reason to set it in 1984. And so when you have a movie set in the 80s, it really would have been nice to actually hear some move, some music from the 80s in it. I don't know. Got it's, some power of love in there. Oh, I, I guess power of love is the following year. That's right. That's right. Oh, so close. So close. Uh, have you seen any of the trailers for this, Sam? I don't think I have, actually. I, I, I may have skipped a few on YouTube, but not, not totally sure. Well, I, I'm not going to – it's not a huge part, but it's uh, – this is another uh, – like I uh, shouldn't say. Uh, there's a moment in this it, – it, it's a big moment, but it's not integral to the story. It's just a cool visual where she is actually, with her lasso of truth, actually lassoing bolts of lightning and swinging between them. Now on the big cool. screen, yeah, on the big screen it would have looked fantastic. Now I heard another. I'm not taking credit for this, but I was listening to another podcast, and he, they said this was the perfect time for a, the song. I think it's by ACDC called "Ride the Lightning," which came uh, out. Metallica has "Ride the Lightning." Metallica, thank you. Yeah. To it and that song, from what they said, came out in 1984, so it would have been a perfect place to put it i was just looking uh, behind me i have a big pile of big pile of socks behind me and i have i have ride the lightning socks nice <laughs> socks. metallica's ride the lightning album cover on it and over my right shoulder there is a metallica uh flag with a different album cover uh, kill them all on yeah. it big uh, big metallica guy so yeah wonder woman 1984 it's a three if you're a fan of the first one it's worth watching because a lot of the things that you like from the first one, especially Gal Gadot and Chris Pine's chemistry, is on full display here. But it's just it's it's not as good as its predecessor. Uh, I may have missed it. Uh, did you rate Wonder Woman as well? Four. Four. Okay. Four for Wonder Woman. Three for Woman. Wonder Woman. Nineteen eighty four. Mm -hmm. Um. So. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know I recently watched the Netflix series uh, The Queen's Gambit, which if you know anything about me, it is totally up my alley. I'm a big chess nerd. I was really happy to watch Queen's Gambit, was really happy with it. So I revisited a movie that I've been wanting to revisit for a bit. It is a movie about the life and declining mental health of a former world chess champion named Bobby Fischer. It's a true story, um, and it focuses primarily on the 1972 World Chess Championship between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky, uh, the American versus the Russian. Um, this is a movie that I've watched before. Bobby Fischer is a legend in the chess community, turned uh, generally considered to be one of the best of all time, but is notoriously a very problematic person. A lot of mental health issues. Uh, he wasn't diagnosed at the time, but it's been speculated since that he had paranoid schizo schizophrenia. Uh, and a number of other uh, health issues that were unaddressed and uh, eventually led to his dec severe decline in mental health. Um, it is or he is portrayed by Tobey Maguire, who is somebody we talked extensively about this year, uh, having talked about the Spider-Man trilogy, one, uh, one episode for each movie. Um, does good work, actually. He does not do very good work in the Spider-Man trilogy. Yeah, you will know our opinion on that if you listen to those episodes. But legitimately, a uh, good performance by Tobey Maguire. He does a good job of portraying this manic uh, manic energy that uh, Bobby Fischer had. Uh, this, uh, this volatility, that's the word I'm going to go with, this volatility that Bobby Fischer had, where he was clearly a genius who understood the game like 
very few people in history up to that point had. Um, but he just had way too many health issues, way too many mental health issues to stay in the game too long. Um, another thing I really like, actually, um, Lev Schreiber making another appearance on the podcast as the antagonist. Uh, Lev Schreiber plays Boris Spassky. And this this match, for those... I, I imagine nobody knows about this match other than me because nobody pays attention to chess. Uh, but this this really was a cultural event in America. This wasn't just a big match for chess. This was a big match for America because this was right in the middle of the Cold War, right? The Soviets viewed chess as a uh, as a, an indication of their intellectual superiority. They viewed it as all of the Soviets are all the best chess players, therefore the communist system is the best or whatever. So this matchup between an American and a Soviet really was like peak Cold War. This was really an American event in 72. Um, and I, I think the movie does a really good job of capturing just how big this match was, not just for chess players, but for everybody. And uh, they also do, uh, with, with this being sort of a Cold War film, it would be really, really easy for them to just portray Boris Spassky as the evil Russian and Bobby Fischer as the heroic American. And I'm really happy they don't go that route because in all actuality, Bobby Fischer was a fucking asshole and Boris Spassky had a reputation as a as a as a gentleman and as somebody who respected the game and respected his opponents and was just a very calm, uh, collected individual. So Pawn Sacrifice with Tobey Maguire, uh, a surprisingly good movie. I think if you like chess, you will probably like this movie a lot. If you don't know anything about chess, you will at least find something in it. I'm, I'm curious, curious exactly to know, but, uh, this might be a little bit of a Homer pick, but I genuinely think it's a good movie. So Pawn Sacrifice gets a four. I've seen Pawn Sacrifice, off the top of my head, I only saw it once. Off the top mm-hmm. of my head, I would probably e- it would be an easy three. Mm-hmm. And for me, Lev Schreiber was one of the was one of the highlights. And when you were talking about him, I in my mind I was like, I'm like, oh, he's a perfect gentleman. And then you said a gentleman, I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a totally enjoyable movie. It was it was way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and it, it doesn't dive too much into the actual chess of it. If there's one criticism I've heard of The Queen's Gambit, it's that they focus a lot on like the actual moves and the strategy, and non-chess players find that a little bit uh, uh, was inaccessible. Uh, Pawn Sacrifice focuses a lot on the politics of the match, mm-hmm. the, uh, the spectacle of the match, and uh, the declining mental health of Bobby Fischer, which I, I think it, it's better for it. So yeah, Pawn Sacrifice, uh, pretty good movie. I can't remember where I found it. It's definitely on one of the major streaming services. It's either Amazon Prime or Netflix. I can't mem- remember, but it's it's easy to find. All right. So I continued along in my knocking off 2020 films, and I checked out the uh, rom-com Happiest Season. Now, I'm going to tell you the lead actress in this movie, and it's immediately going to tell you to not watch it, Sam, but bear with me. Because the lead actress is Kristen Stewart. Oh it, also, it also stars Mackenzie Davis, uh, Mary Steenburgen, and someone that is very popular uh, nowadays because of his hit show, but I've never watched an episode, and that's Dan Levy uh, from Schitt's Creek. Uh, I have watched probably about a season and a half worth of Schitt's Creek. It's not bad. There's some good stuff in there. Is I, I'm assuming you started at the beginning. Like you watch season uh, one. I, I have I have started at the beginning, uh, but uh, a number of my different friends and my and my girlfriend as well 
uh, I'll watch Shit's Creek. So if if I'm ever hanging out with somebody, which is rare these days in the pandemic, mm-hmm. but I've like gone to people's houses and they have Shit's Creek on or like I, I just know a bunch of people that watch it. So I've kind of seen sporadic episodes here oh, and there. Okay. I've just heard I think like I think much like you said with Bojack Horseman, like the first season of Shit's Creek isn't that good, but they they find their groove and the sh- and the show becomes starts to become really really good. Yeah, in in my opinion, in the first season of Shit's Creek, there I mean I, I don't know if you know what the show is about, I but don't. it's a it's about I'm... a rich family that loses its fortune and has to move into this like they take over this shitty motel in this town called Shit's Creek, which uh, the patriarch of the family, Eugene Levy, bought uh, when they were rich as a joke for his son because it had a funny name and it's, now it's the only place they can live. Um Anyway, so they're all just these rich assholes who have to be acclimatized to like rural life, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it, that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. And one of the problems with the first season of it is I don't really root for anyone; they all suck. Yeah. <laughs> so what in, in the later seasons when they become a little bit more human, it becomes a lot more fun. And Dan Levy is is having a blast. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And yeah. Dan Levy is probably the best thing in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Stewart is. Hold on. Actually not bad in this movie. Okay. She's not she's not actively bad. I will not go as far as good, but I'm not dreading her. Um the movie is uh it says it's a holiday romantic comedy that captures the range of emotions tied to wanting your family's acceptance, being true to yourself and trying not to ruin Christmas. That's a fucking horrible uh IMDb. It's about a lesbian couple that goes to uh, they're f- one of the girls' families for Christmas. Uh, Kristen Stewart, It's she's not the character whose family they're going to visit. That's her girlfriend, played by Mackenzie Davis. But Mackenzie Davis has not come out to her parents. Her parents still think she's straight, and yet Mackenzie Davis is bringing her live-in girlfriend to uh, to Christmas dinner, and Mackenzie, on the way to their parents who live in a different city, then tells Kristen Stewart she has not come out, which is obviously a shock. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's, it's it's a comedy about Mackenzie Davis and Kristen Stewart, you know, hiding that they're gay. And Kristen Stewart's not okay with this, but is willing to do with it because she is, she was going to propose over Christmas and she was going to ask the father for permission, but now she can't because the dad doesn't know her daughter's gay. And I'm going to say this. Uh, it's not a huge spoiler. Part of the uh, hijinks or trouble that they get in is that they, over the course of the this holidays, they run into uh, Kristen Stewart's character's Abby, uh, Mackenzie Davis is Harper. They run into Harper's ex-girlfriend, played by Aubrey Plaza, and her character's name is Riley. And Riley and Abby strike up a little bit of a friendship. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to kind of spoil this movie a little bit. Yeah, uh, I, I probably won't watch it. It's, it's Honestly, Sam, it's actually worth watching. It's, it's worth watching. Um, there's other films I would probably recommend, but it's it's definitely it, it's it's worth watching i gotta fill out my 2020 watches somewhere so um mackenzie davis is actually hard to root for in this movie mm. the way she treats abby throughout the film 
is hard. And seeing the connection that Abby and Riley have, this whole time you just want Abby and Riley to get together instead of Abby and Harper. And it's there's some real there are some truly laugh out loud moments. Uh, Dan Levy playing she he plays the gay also gay. <laughs> he plays the gay best friend to a gay character. Uh, right. uh, he is just having the time of his life in this movie. And he's he's a lot of fun to watch. The movie is enjoyable, but I found it really hard to root for Abby and Harper to be together when Harper is such a complete piece of shit to Abby for a lot mm-hmm. of the movie. And... I really was just hoping I'm, I'm not spoiling anything. It's a fucking run to comedy. I just really wanted. if, when you watch this movie, you're, you're going to, you're, you're going to be team Riley. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to wish that Riley and Abby would get together. Because and they, honestly, I like, I like Aubrey Plaza too. She was in a show that I really like called parks and recreation and she's fucking hilarious in that show. So she's, I, I'm already team Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. She's actually, she doesn't have a lot of comedic moments. I didn't know. Mm. I didn't. I didn't know who she was. I've never watched. Oh, okay. I, I'm saying it was. It was at Parks and Rec. Yeah, Parks and Rec. She plays. Uh, I can't remember the character's name right now. It's, that kind of sucks because she's a great character. She's like this really dark, brooding, serious. Like she's very, very serious and like very dark and is always making like dark jokes and mm. never smiles or anything like that. That's sort of her thing. Wow, she actually must be a pretty good actress because in this in this movie she plays. She's not that at all. She's a very actually kind of well-grounded and well-rounded person who mm-hmm. just happened to things just didn't work out between her and Harper. And she is very supportive and very nice to Abby, despite the fact that she's dating her ex. Um, it, the movie is, it's good. It was really enjoyable, but the hard part for me was rooting for the two main characters to get together or, or to work things out in the end because Harper at times is, 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 100% unsympathetic especially with what at times what she does to Abby and uh, but yeah I had a really good time uh, I I gave Happy Season a 3 but I would easily rewatch this anytime I could it was uh, it was a very it was it was just a well done movie I, I, I enjoyed it it was uh, it was a lot of fun and yeah Happy Season 3 hmm awesome uh, by the way, Aubrey Plaza's character on Parks and Recreation, April Ludgate. I'm kicking myself for not remembering that. Should All be right. should be a good one. She, uh, she minor spoilers, I guess, for Parks and Rec, but whatever. It's an older show. She uh, is Chris Pratt's love interest, and they wind up getting married. Gotcha. It's crazy to think of Chris Pratt as anything other than a massive uh, film star, <laughs> but that was back uh, back when he got to start in TV. Anyway. Uh, it's my turn to talk about some 2020 movies. I know that you've seen this one. I'm fairly certain that you have. I don't know if you're overly excited about it. I don't know if I am either, but I watched The Five Bloods. Um, it had a lot to like. I think uh, whoever plays Paul in Del this Roy movie. Lindo. The Del What's Roy Lindo. Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo. Uh, I, I'm fully on board for an Oscar nom for him. He does spectacular work in this movie, in my opinion. Uh, the soliloquies that he has where he's just speaking directly to the camera. Fantastic. There are some of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
in in those specific moments. But this is a, this is a very dark movie. It's about a bunch of old friends who uh, were uh, they were in the same. I guess you would call it a troop, I guess, yeah. the, the same troop in uh, in Vietnam, in Vietnam War. And they're going both to recover the body of one of their dead, um, one of their dead friends, I guess, their dead leader, mm-hmm. uh, who was played uh, by Chadwick Boseman in his final role, if I if I recall. No, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is his final role. Right. OK, um, so yeah, they're they're going back to get his body and they're also going back to get uh gold they they there was some stolen gold that uh when their when their helicopter went down that the gold got lost and they're going to recover that as well and they uh they want to they want to get rich quick as well it basically it's it's the plot of triple triple frontier right a movie that we reviewed last year it seems it's very similar to triple frontier quite similar Um, yeah yeah quite similar in a lot of different ways um i found it difficult uh to it, it I'm trying to figure out a way to say this. Spike Lee really is reveling in a lot of the violence in this movie, which normally it's not a problem for me. Normally he goes a little over the top (laughs) at a couple of points to the point of being like almost hilarious. Like it kind of strikes me as almost, um, uh, tropic thundery <laughs> in in one scene in particular. I know it's exactly like, the it's scene like, you're talking okay, about. Okay, there's there's way too much blood and gore in this scene right now. Like you need to dial it back. Um, it felt a little predictable at times. Uh, I saw a lot of the things coming. In particular, that gory scene that I'm just referencing. Yeah. I was literally like counting down in my head for that thing to happen. Like it's just like of somebody course. has some. Uh, so something something very bad happens to one of our main characters, and I was just sitting there like, okay, here here it comes. Like this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the main problem with *The Five Bloods* is its predictability. It, it feels really predictable at a lot of times. Um, another thing that I didn't really like about it all that much is uh, th- there doesn't really seem to be a lesson in the end. Like, uh, maybe it's just because I was spent my energy comparing this to Triple Frontier, but it felt like the point of this movie should have been that the wealth corrupts the group. That That's what it felt like it should have been in my head. And it felt like the movie was kind of leading up to that. And it doesn't really reach that conclusion, in my opinion. It doesn't really logically get there. Uh, and it feels like that's what the entire movie is building up towards. So a little bit thematically confused, I think, to Five Bloods. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at times a little bit predictable. Some fantastic performances. The chemistry between the four male leads, all of whom are, are quite a bit older, is great a lot of the time. Um, there, there's some excellent uh, bit part acting by by uh, this uh, this like bomb squad, this, uh, this team that goes around uh, diffusing landmines. Uh, there's some good performances in there. Um, but yeah, just, just a little bit predictable at times. And, uh, oh, the flashback sequences, the flashback sequences are actually quite good with Chadwick Boseman, in my opinion. I like how the aspect ratio shrinks a little bit. The footage becomes a little bit grainy. Uh, technically those, uh, those scenes are really, really good. But, um, the, the last thing I want to complain about with the five bloods real quick is, uh, I'm glad they included the footage of Chadwick Boseman that they had it's pretty clear at times they were hurting a little bit for footage. It's pretty clear at times they kind of had to work around maybe not having as much footage of him as they would have liked, maybe overdubbing some lines over top. Uh, in particular, uh, I think the scene between, oh man, I can't really say there's, I can't really say which scene it is towards the end of the movie anyway, with Chadwick Boseman in it. 
Uh, it just felt like they were. It felt like they were trying to find a way to maybe maneuver around a lack of footage. Um, maybe that was just uh, that one moment, but it, it kind of stuck out to me. Um, so uh, the Five Bloods has some problems. It's on a technical level very well made. Has some excellent performance in uh, particular by Delroy something or other. I'm sorry, Lindo. I don't have the name. Okay, yeah, in particular by him. Just a, a, a knock it out of the park performance. Like fantastic work he is doing. I can't emphasize that enough. And he he really has some great writing behind him as well. Uh, but a little bit of predictability and a little bit of thematic confusion uh, downgraded it to a three for me. I I think that Delroy Lindo is probably going to win the Oscar. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's I, I could you imagine being an actor reading this script? Like you would be begging for this part. Yeah. And it's an absolutely meaty role that allows you to do pretty much everything you've ever wanted to do in, in a film with this character. I think the character's name is Paul. Yes. Uh, it is an absolutely jaw-dropping performance from Delroy Lindo, who is really good in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in. And it's about time for him to get his moment. He is absolutely amazing. I guess I'm going to have to revisit this movie because I don't... I can't recall the problems that you're talking about. And I know the scene that you're talking about, which we yeah. obviously can't talk about without spoiling it. Yeah, it's a pretty big spoiler for your direction. Huge that. spoiling. So yeah. uh, maybe I'll have to revisit it, but I don't recall ever having a problem with that as all with, with that at all. Uh, so uh, I, I'll take your word on it. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look at it. But I, I enjoyed the, the Five Bloods. I'm pretty sure I gave it a three as well. Uh, it's yeah. lifted by the great chemistry between the four leads. Uh, the flashbacks, one of the things I liked about the flashbacks, which I, I wanted to talk about with you, Mm-hmm. I like that they I I lo- I totally agree that they I love that they shrink the aspect ratio. I love that they get the grain and I love that they don't change the actors. Yeah, so in these you're referring to the fact that in these flashbacks to the Vietnam War where they're with Chadwick Boseman who is a young man, uh they use all of the old actors, all of the all of the elderly actors. Yeah. Who are who are playing these old Probably men who are in the, returning in the, to Vietnam in their sixties and maybe even their seventies? Yeah, they're they're using all these older actors alongside Chadwick Boseman. Uh, I think it works. It's uh, I think it, works it was just a little fine. it was a little strange at first. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, oh shit, are they really going this route? But you know what? It it worked seamlessly. I was I was fully on board. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I had no problem. The first scene the first scene is a little jarring. You're like, I don't what's going on. Then you realize yeah. you're like, oh, this is a flashback. Oh, they're just going to use the same actors, so you don't have to try and figure out who's who. I'm like, yeah. well, well done. They don't, de- think- they don't digitally de-age them. They do nothing. These li- mm-hmm. these actors are playing both them in their 60s and in their 20s, even though they look like they're in their 60s. I, I was like, I'm like genius. I'm like, I'm on board. You got me. And I think, and I think in. that's another reason. That's another reason why the changing of the aspect ratio in these flashbacks, as well as degrading the footage a little bit, is a reason why it's important because the flashback needs to announce itself somehow. And if they were just using these same old actors, it would be really confusing. I think. Yeah. So totally. I, I think it's I think it's a wise decision by Spike Lee for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, to Five Bloods, I initially gave it a four uh, when I when I finished watching the movie. 
simply because I was still glowing from uh, from the the acting of Paul. Uh, it was it was really really good. But I think there's enough problems with the movie uh, from a plot perspective that I just had to downgrade it to a three. I'm just gonna quickly see if I can find it. Oh no! Wow, I have to go really far back. I'm pretty sure I gave it a three. I guess I could just look it up quickly, but instead I'm doing this the hard way. <laughs> I I was pretty sure I, I gave saw this come. Yeah, you. I saw it come across your letterbox, I think, and you gave it a three. Yeah. Uh, all right. The next movie I watched was one I was super excited. Oh, I shouldn't say super excited. I was I was anticipating watching because I'm a fan of the actor, and while his directorial efforts have been fairly hit or miss, uh, he's made one incredibly great film. So I'll always kind of hold out hope that it can do it again. Uh, and this is the uh, sci-fi drama, The Midnight Sky, written, or not say written, uh, but directed by and starring George Clooney. This is the type of movie that I wish I had seen on the big screen. There are numerous moments where, because the film is so gorgeously shot, there are times where I was watching it and I was just like, if I had seen this on the big screen, it would have been one of those, <gasps> just those breathless takes of something so exquisitely shot and beautiful that just looks so good in the cinema, not on your TV. Uh, the movie is about uh, a post-apocalyptic tale follows Augustine, a lonely scientist in the Arctic, as he races to stop Sully and her fellow astronauts from returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. So Augustine is obviously uh, George Clooney. Uh, there has been some global catastrophe uh, that is basically making Earth uninhabitable. And this uh, ship had been sent out into space. There was this undiscovered moon around Saturn, I believe. And this crew of five, I think five, five or six, had gone there to do research to check to see if it, had, if, if it was inhabitable. Could they move there? While they were there, this massive catastrophe happens on Earth. And so as this ship is returning to Earth, uh, they're returning to basically a, uh, a wasteland of a planet. And Augustine races to get to this uh, satellite so he can contact them to tell them, don't come here, turn around, go to that planet, and you know start fresh. And it's basically two movies in one. It's about Augustine racing through the Arctic trying to survive the harsh conditions. And it's also the story of this space crew coming back towards Earth, trying to understand why they can't contact Earth, and also, you know, dealing with uh, other space problems that you sometimes see. This movie was not well received by critics, not that well received by the people that watched it. It has a 58 Metascore and a 5.6 user rating on IMDb, which is really fucking low. I I did enjoy it. There are some problems with it. Um, it's still enjoyable. I, I'm a I like George Clooney as an actor. This is not a great role. It's not a, a tour de force performance. But I had a good time watching it. I just this is the kind of movie that I really wish I had seen on the big screen because there are a lot of really great movie moments that would have played well in a theater. 
And so it's unfortunate that uh, I didn't get the chance. I don't even know if there would have ever been a chance. This is a Netflix film. But The Midnight Sky, it's fine. It's definitely a, sci- a sci-fi movie worth checking out sometime. Hmm. From from what you're telling me uh, these days, you, you're almost watching it on a big screen at home. <laughs> almost, but I didn't, almost. I didn't have that at this time. Ooh, I see. I see. It didn't have your fancy new TV. No. Unfortunately not. So yeah, Midnight Sky 3. Worth worth checking. Totally worth checking out. Sounds sounds interesting. Like It sounds like subject matter I would be interested in. I'm, I'm a fan of sci-fi movies like this. So may, maybe I'll give it a go. You see it's on Netflix? Yep. Okay. May, I'll, I'll maybe add it to the list. Sounds like fun. Um, I also watched a 2020 movie. Another one. Not just a Five Bloods. I watched another one. Um, you know I had to do it. Um, I wonder. I have to imagine you watched it as well. I watched Soul uh, on Christmas. I watched it. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do, do you want to start or should I? Go ahead. Um, this is the most mature Pixar movie to date. That was the first thing I said to the group chat. I, I'm remembering now we actually talked about this a little bit in the group chat on Christmas day. Uh-huh. So I, I shouldn't, I know that you did watch it. Um, it's easily the most mature Pixar movie to date. Um, it deals with themes of death that, uh, it, in a way that only a Pixar movie can, it, uh, it has a way of coping with the afterlife. Th- this movie had to tiptoe around so many things. It does, it does not stick to one religious ideology. It does not say, oh, this is what happens after you die. No, the, this religion is right and this religion is wrong. They definitely, there was some, you know, there was some writers meetings about how they could offend as few people as possible with this. And in my opinion, they do a pretty good job of creating an original vision of the afterlife. And I guess in the movie, they don't even really say it's the afterlife. They just kind of say it. it's sort of like the waiting room before you get into the afterlife, I guess, where your soul goes. Um, you you know I'm going to go there, so I'm just going to go there. The jazz sequences <laughs> in this movie look amazing. They look amazing. They sound amazing. I'm pretty sure even the saxophonists are playing the correct notes. Like, they have been animated to play the correct notes that they you are. are hearing. They are. Uh, same with the pianist and same with everybody. Everybody is actually playing their instruments. It is... It, the detail that went into the animation in Soul uh, is clearly astounding, even for Pixar standards. I feel like I say that every time a Pixar movie comes out. I'm like, I know I always say the animation is great, but this time the animation's really great. Well, I'm saying it again. I say it every time, but the animation in Soul is breathtaking. It's spectacular. It's one of the highlights of the movie. Um, The variety of animation styles as well. It's not just the real life stuff. It's not just the Soul stuff. It's not just the uh, the animation of Jerry, which is in uh, which is in 2D. (laughs) It's all of that stuff. It's the variety. It's the different flavors. Uh, It's beautiful to look at it's beautiful to listen to and i had a great great time with soul if there's one thing manny one thing about soul i'm gonna try to say this in as non-spoilery a way as i possibly can okay because this is new and i want people to go watch this movie Uh, the ending they clearly had an ending they wanted to go with and they pussied out they clear in my opinion they there's one clear way to end this movie which would have just had me applauding 
and they didn't go there. They stopped just short. They stopped just shy of giving this, of making this movie just like, in my opinion, an all-time great one. For Pixar, that is. All right. I initially had this movie as a five. I have been thinking about the ending nonstop since it stopped, uh, since uh, since I finished this movie. And I'm going to need to rewatch it. I might restore its five status, but I did downgrade it to a four because the fact that they didn't go for the ending I wanted them to, while I do understand it, bothers me. It bothers me. All right. So it's it's just a four for the moment, but I'm definitely going to revisit and I, I withhold the right to restore its status as a five. All right. I'm shocked because I thought this would have been an easy five for you. As I, when I watched it, I'm like, Sam's gonna love this movie. Yeah, I, I did, and I, I really, and I hear myself talking about it. I'm like, am I really sure that I don't like the ending that much? But the ending did bother me, so I'm, I'm gonna revisit it and, and report back. Fair enough. Uh, I had a great time. I actually, it's so funny as you and I have been doing our best to avoid trailers and such for movies. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even know the voice talent that was in this movie. And I didn't even realize it was Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey until the end. Me neither. Me neither. And uh, I just want to applaud the two of them and their voice work uh, th- uh, in this film. Jamie Foxx, especially he's, he was great. Uh, as is it? Sorry. What was the character's name again? Joe. Joe. Uh, I had a great time. I had a lot of fun. I love that uh, Mother Teresa uh, got to be mean for a second. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable movie, and I agree wholeheartedly. This is easily the most mature Pixar film. I'm actually curious if kids would like this at all. They're- yeah, it does not strike me as a kid's movie. I won't spoil. I'm not spoiling anything. It's a little bit of a spoiler, but the part I'm going to reveal isn't spoilery. I'm sure it's in the trailers, but in my opinion, I really think the only part that kids might like is the talking cat. Yeah, yeah. Which I'll admit, at first I was kind of like, ah, like are we really sticking with this? I like I didn't know if there was a whole lot of new ground to be broken because they stay on the talking cat stuff for a while yeah. actually. And I was, I was surprised by that decision. It wound up working for me. I, I wound up liking it. Yeah, it's fine there. Yeah. I, I had a really good time with this movie. This movie is really well done. It's a, it's a Pixar film. It's just, I don't know. They're, they are an incredibly talented group of individuals that make really good movies, and this is just yet another one of them that showcases the incredible talent at that studio. I had a great time with Soul. Soul was a four for me. Yeah, it was, uh, in my opinion, one of the best modern Pixar movies, and I'm, I'm, I, I would say, what, modern being post-Toy Story 3, I guess? One of the best Pixar movies of the last 10 years, and uh, I, I really hope to be able to restore it to a five did you have any opinions on the ending that you can share without being spoilery because i'm curious to know if i'm the only one who wanted them to end it differently i'm curious i would love to know how you wanted it to end so why don't mm-hmm. we let's throw a spoiler bumper up here right now yeah i again spoiler for soul if you haven't seen it highly recommend you do uh, skip ahead a few minutes probably if, give you, us, if you don't want to have it spoiled. give us give us five minutes give us five minutes give us five minutes to talk this out five minutes uh three Three, two, one, go fuck yourself. Okay, so Soul, the ending. 
he's standing on the uh, on the walkway to the great beyond uh, and and he's just basically sacrificed he, the whole movie is building up to him realizing the value of his life and the value of the sacrifice that he's going to make i believe for 22 and he he's uh being a teacher he has realized the effect that his mentorship has had on 22 and he has made the he's made the decision to sacrifice his life so that 22 can lead, lead a full compelling life realizing the value of his own and leaves I realize it's a kids movie and it would be way it would be way too dark probably. I'm sure they wanted to do this and then Pixar was like, "Are you fucking crazy? We're not going to end a movie like that." But the the whole movie in my opinion is just building up to this sacrifice from Joe and it just it, if he doesn't actually cross the plane to the great beyond at the end, it doesn't really have that much weight in my opinion. If if he if we don't have we, we can still have that final conversation between him and Jerry if we want, uh, where he maybe he as he's uh, riding the escalator to the great beyond, Jerry comes up to him and tells him again how inspired they've all been by his sacrifice for 22. And I, I think Joe can express how content he is. And even though he's he's going to miss everybody, he, he knows that it was the right thing to do and that it was his time. And then he can ask Jerry what's on the other side. And Jerry can tell him that. Uh, that's not for him to it's not for him to say it's not for him to decide nobody really knows and it's not really important what's important is the impact that he had on this side of the great beyond and then he takes one look back one look down at 22 and crosses into it that in my opinion it's definitely a little heavy for the kids i'm not denying that but it's just clearly in my opinion the better ending and i think the pixar writers knew that it's just clearly the better ending and i was a little bit disappointed even though from a logical perspective, I was like, oh, they can't end it that way because it's a kid's movie. It's just clearly better, in my opinion. Clearly better. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, so I, I, if they were going to do that, waterworks, just endlessly waterworks. My eyes would have never stopped crying, and I would have stood up and applauded the movie. But it just it feels a little shoehorned in that he doesn't die. It just feels like... Ah, we'll just we'll just allow this one soul to go back to Earth for no reason. They even make a joke about it, about how is it is it Terry, Terry the one Terry. who's keeping t- keeping count? They have a cute little joke thrown in about how they basically just trick him into allowing one soul to return to Earth, and it's fine. But in my opinion, that the the exclusion of that plot point uh, just it, it downgrades Soul one full star for me. It just they they knew what they had to do and they didn't do it. That's the bottom line. Gotcha. All right. Spoilers over for Soul. Yep. Now we're now we're back. Now we're back. No more spoilers. No more spoilers. Yeah. All right. So that, that was Soul. I, I brought that one up, so why don't you uh, go with another one? Okay. So this is a movie I've been hearing about for quite a while. Uh, it came out earlier this year, and it's a drama called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And this was a very powerful film, Sam. This movie was everything I had heard. And it was something that was uh, a very, oh man, like almost eye-opening movie. Uh, The movie is a pair of teenage girls in rural Pennsylvania travel to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. 
So it's about a 17-year-old girl who goes to get goes to get an abortion. And this isn't a road trip movie about hijinks and stuff like that. Uh, this is a movie about a 17-year-old girl who got pregnant and is trying to go get an abortion without her parents finding out. And her cousin goes with her. This movie has numerous moments where it shows the absolutely disgusting nature of the male gender. And at times it made me go, I my gender is fucking disgusting. And while I know that basically already, this movie just reinforces that whole moment. And it actually has nothing to do with the person that gets her pregnant. It's these other people that they... A, lo- a couple other men that they encounter throughout their trip. The movie has an absolutely incredible performance from the lead actress who I've never heard of. Um, her name is uh, Sydney Flanagan. She she been in anything else that I know of? Uh, nope. This was her acting debut. Wow. Wow. She is outstanding, Sam. She has a scene in the middle of the movie that uh, nearly brought me to tears. Uh, It was an incredibly tour-de-force performance in the middle of this movie uh, in this one scene, and it was it was a really it was a really good movie. Well acted, well shot. It's an incredibly low. It had to have been a very low budget. Uh, let's see here. It doesn't even, yeah, so low budget there actually isn't even any budget listed here on IMDb. This movie, it really, it was really, really good. I feel that if a woman were to watch this movie, it would have a profound effect on them. This is a, a really moving and touching film. And the uh, writer-director, Eliza Hitman is somebody that I'll be keeping my eye on uh, to see what else she does. Uh, it was uh, a great, a great, great film. Do you have a, do you have a rating for it? Yeah, it's a four. It's a four. Easy. Yeah, this, uh, easy, easy you're, four. you became very somber the second you started talking about this movie. I knew this was going to be uh, something serious. I, this is not one I've even heard of. It's not one that's on my radar even remotely, uh, but it is now. It's just on my watch list. It, it's uh, currently sitting at a 91 Metascore. Yeah. 91. Yeah, wow. that's about right. There's actually really not much that I could offer to complain about this movie. And uh, do you? how did you watch this movie? I rented it. You rented it uh, through, through what service? Oh, you can get it on any one of them. It's, yeah. it's on iTunes and Google Pod and Google Podcasts <laughs> on Google Play. I I I generally use Google Play a little bit more. Uh yeah. but yeah, it was it was awesome. It was it was a really good and very powerful film and I was so happy to have watched it. Yeah, it seems like it uh, it really affected you. Uh it's I'm looking at its stats uh, on IMDb. It's just really sad watching or looking at the box office numbers for movies like this <laughs> on a, on a good year. But when you take into account the pandemic as well, it's cumulative worldwide gross at the current moment is $300,000. Well, it, 
it came out in in April, so it came out right when the pandemic hit and the quarantine began. That's really shitty. That's yeah. really really shitty. Um, if I do watch this movie, I, I will I will go out of my way to pay to watch this movie 100 percent because yeah. that's just that's just really too bad. I think it's only like five bucks to rent it. Five six bucks. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll check it out for sure. Awesome. We're uh, we're getting down to the last of it. Uh, so after having watched the Five Bloods. Uh, Jordan and I were, got talking about Spike Lee and what other movies we had seen, and I said, you know what I really want to rewatch actually is Black Klansman, because I, I remember watching that movie in 2018 and feeling sort of mixed about it, definitely really liking it. I gave it a four on its initial release, uh, but I knew there was some stuff that needed to be parsed out, and it was just one that I was going to have to revisit. And so right after uh, Defive Blood's credit rolled, uh, Defive Blood's credits rolled, rather, uh, we put on Black Klansman again. And what a... F- <laughs> that, that is the funnest movie about the KKK I've ever seen in my life. That's the, the best way I can describe it. Uh, John David Washington is doing a white voice as Ron Stallworth so perfectly. He's giving a really good... Uh, it's i guess a comedic performance but he's not even really doing anything too funny he's just kind of a dweeb he's just kind of a dork in this movie and uh yeah he, he's doing great work we have um we have adam driver as well as white ron stallworth uh i forget the uh, the the actual character's name is flip i think i think so uh and he's the the jewish counterpart of this operation uh, this uh operation uh basically it is about a uh, a black police detective who goes undercover in the KKK. And obviously that is not going to work too well. The, uh, the Dave Chappelle bit comes to mind. I don't know if you've seen that Manny, the, uh, the black, the, the black member of the KKK who's blind and doesn't know that he's black. Mm. <laughs> uh, just, just horrible. Um, but uh, John David Washington is uh, a member of the KKK undercover over the phone. And Adam driver is, the character in person when he needs to attend these meetings and stuff. I love that Spike Lee does not sugarcoat his disdain for these ugly, disgusting, upsetting individuals that they're undermining. He does not sugarcoat them. He doesn't say, well, they're, they're really just troubled people deep down. Like he tears them a fucking new one. He makes them look like idiots. He makes them fat he, he makes them just undesirable in a number of ways that a person can be undesirable. Um, my boy, Topher Grace, playing the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke. I remember hearing that he was going to be playing David Duke, and my mind was blown. I was like, okay, if I wasn't going to go see this movie already, I have to now, because that is either a genius idea or the worst thing I've ever heard. And one way or the other, it's going to be much must-watch. And in my opinion, he does fantastic work as David Duke uh, and does a really good job of capturing um, how smart Duke thinks he is, mm-hmm. I guess, and does a good job of capturing... Uh, David Duke comes off in this movie like a... I've heard this term used to describe Donald Trump. He comes off like a dumb person's idea of a smart person. <laughs> he comes off like what dumb people think a smart person is. And Spike Lee also has no reservations about taking some pretty clear swipes at Donald Trump, both in this and to Five Bloods. Uh, he, he is not shy about uh, showing uh, what he thinks about our 
current political moment. Um, Black Klansman is one I enjoyed a lot on first watch. I enjoyed it a lot on second watch. Its political commentary has only become more relevant in the last two years since its release. And uh, I think it's worth revisiting for a lot of people. And I'm glad that I checked it out again. I had a great time. Four stars for Black Klansman. Yeah, I was a big fan of Black Klansman as well. I'm pretty sure I gave it a four as well. And I was just checking. I thought it made my list of that year, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that movie. Great movie. I think uh, I would have to double check as well. I think I initially had it in like the seven or eight slot. It would probably move up, honestly, because I, if I recall, that was kind of a weaker year for film. Yeah, 2018 was, was kind of weak and 19 was really, really strong. Yeah, generally. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm glad that I revisited it. Um, maybe maybe a nitpick here, but after watching to five bloods and black clans and back to back, I'm not sure if I'm a big fan of Spike Lee's um, ending style. Mm-hmm. He uh he seems to I understand the purpose of doing this. He seems to want to end with the message, which is not a bad exercise at all for a director, but he seems to like to end using real life footage. And both times uh, for both of these movies, it felt a little truncated. I don't know why it felt like we still had more to do. Like we had more conclusion yet to come in the actual story of black Klansman. I, I I felt like I was robbed of a conclusion of black Klansman. And then they just cut to real life footage of, uh, KKK rallies and not neo-Nazi rallies and stuff like that. And, and I get why he's cutting to these things. I just felt like I was robbed of a conclusion for the story. You, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, I don't want that real life stuff to be replaced or anything. I just, I was like, wait, hold off for a second. What happened to our characters? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, it, not not totally clear on whether I like that sort of style. It might require some meditation, but it struck me as odd for both of these movies. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. I got two more movies to talk about. I also have two. So this is a movie that I was super excited to watch. It's one that I heard was good. You had seen it, I'm pretty sure. And it was high on my must-watch list to get done before I do my end-of-the-year list. Mm-hmm. And that's the drama movie Sound of Metal. Nice. Love it. Let's hear it. Riz Ahmed is going to get an Oscar nomination. 100%. And in my opinion, is probably the only person that will compete with Delroy Lindo. I think mm-hmm. the other three nominations we'll see will be fantastic nominations, but will probably just kind of be also Rans. I think it's between the two of them. The sound design in this film was jaw-dropping, mm-hmm. how they played with the sound to make us understand what I think it's Gus was going through. Am I right? Gus? Ruben. Sorry, Ruben. Don't know where you got Gus. Neither do I. Uh, mm. He... <laughs> is an absolutely spectacular performance which anchors this film. The movie is also... Uh, where's uh, Paul Racy as Joe mm-hmm. is someone that I really hope gets a supporting actor nomination. I love where the movie goes. I love that the, the group that he joins, I love... I, and I... I'm 
really sad to say that I never thought of it this way, but I love that that whole group doesn't see being deaf as something that needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the whole theme of the fi- of the film. It's it's just a powerful film that was so incredibly well done. Uh, it was everything I'd hoped for. It's an absolutely fantastic movie that I'm sure will be on a lot of top 10 lists and will probably be fairly well represented at the Oscars this year. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm really glad that you liked it. Uh, it, it was one that really affected me. Uh, you're right. The themes of uh, the, the, the message of uh, deafness, not really being a, a handicap was one I know has resonated with a lot of people. Um, for the last three movies that I talked about, uh, five bloods, soul and black Klansman, I had, kind of nitpicks with the ending with the endings i had things that would change uh sound of metal (laughs) this is an ending this oh man this ending one of one of the best endings to a movie i've seen in recent years it uh it floored me Uh, i stopped just short of crying but it it was just the perfect way for this there was no other way for the movie to end it was Gorge. It was set. It's not just the ending itself. It's also the setup and everything that came before it. It's foreshadowed beautifully. It's uh, it's set up perfectly. It's it's a fantastic thematic moment. And this is filmmaking done right. When the character arc ends, when the character learns whatever it needs, whatever they need to learn, or has a realization, has an epiphany of what they need to know, the movie ends. That's just that is what the story is. And I, I think it was masterful. I am so glad it ended the way it did. Um, it's one of the highlights of the movie for me. You're right. Riz Ahmed, what a fucking performance. It just spectacular. He does have, he does a great job of being reserved. There, there's a call, there's a call that happens right after he loses his hearing, right at the beginning of the movie. There's a telephone conversation that he has with his sponsor because he's, he's a recovering addict as well. Mm-hmm. There's a phone conversation that he has where he, is clearly trying to remain calm and he's really, really frustrated and he's just, it, it's so close to boiling over in him and he's really upset right yep. now and he's just, he stops just short that like he doesn't freak out and he's he's obviously frustrated. Uh, and it's a great performance. And then there's a scene not too long after that where it does boil over and he gets an awesome freak out scene. He, yep. he has a really, really good frustration boiling over, breaking stuff, screaming. He hasn't, excellent scene of that it's very cathartic um yeah i i have nothing but nice things to say about sound of metal i i gave it a four initially um it if i watch it again it might be a five it's a really powerful movie excellent performances excellent excellent writing and one of the best endings i've seen in a long time i wholeheartedly agree this is a movie i did give a four as well it could it could get up to a five upon multiple viewings uh best supporting actor nom for paul racy potentially that's what i just said yeah yeah, yeah, I, uh, I I really liked his performance as well. They have a great conversation, the two of them. Joe is sort of uh, sort of Ruben's mentor uh, in in this uh, in this facility. He's his mentor and uh, is teaching him how to live a deaf life, basically. Yeah. Uh, and they have they have a conversation towards the end of the movie where, in in a lesser movie from a lesser director and a lesser writer, uh, it would be another sort of blow up scene. It would just be yelling and screaming. It would be an argument. Uh, but it's it's. Two men who have who have uh, who have a, a form of love for each other who who are having who are sort of at an impasse and are having a, something of a disagreement and they're 
they're both playing it just under the surface. They're both a little frustrated and they're both a little upset, but nobody resorts to yelling. And it's uh, it's another really powerful scene. There's, there's so many great scenes in sound of metal. I'm, I'm so happy that you watched it. I'm so happy that you liked it. Um, this is eligible for this year's Oscars then. Cause I know that it is listed as a 2019 on some places, it's listed including tw- IMDb. It's listed as a 2019 film because it played the festival circuit in 2019. Mm-hmm. but it didn't get a theatrical release until this year. That's why it's eligible for this year's Oscars. Okay, but um, Vast of Night is a 2019 movie, right? No, 20, it, Vast of Night is a 2020 film. Same thing. Okay, played the, played perfect. The, played the festival markets, didn't get a release until this year. Okay, thank you for clarifying that, because I'm, uh, I'm going to be finalizing my 2020 lists, and I'm going to need to know these things. Yes, if you have any questions on any of them, let me know. But yes, Fast of Night and Sound of Metal are both eligible for our 2020 films. Okay, perfect. Just a little foreshadowing uh, for uh, for the next few months there. I don't know if you knew this, but the writer-director of Sound of Metal uh, has another writing credit that I th- is a movie that you thoroughly enjoy. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was just listening to our uh, Place Beyond the Pines episode, which I believe is what you're referring to. Yes. Uh, I was just listening to our episode on that, which we pre-recorded all the way back in, uh, I think, October. Is that right? Late October? October, November, around there. Yeah, and it was we pre-recorded it to release at the end of December or beginning of January. Yeah, it was our first episode of the new year. Uh, and I did say that the director of, or, or the writer of uh, Place Beyond the Pines had a movie coming up uh, called Sound of Metal that I was really interested in checking out. Now, I think I just found out about it, like, literally on air that day. And it's crazy to think, now I have watched it, and it is fucking awesome. (laughs) Wicked. All right. What you got? So the next two are not new ones for me. They're oldies. Well, I mean, I say oldies. They're just classics. They're movies that I really enjoy watching and have seen several times each. The first one is a movie by a man that I know you respect like no other. It's not David Fincher. <laughs> it is uh, the other one, I would say. It's Steven Spielberg Ooh. starring two of our best living actors, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Oh. In the, in the 2002 movie, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, that movie's so good. A movie that was not nominated for Best Picture. I believe this was a, a really strong year. I think when we talked about 2002, first of all, we weren't doing each nominee gets its own episode. We were doing all five nominees in one episode. I can't. But believe, if I recall, I can't believe we used to do that. Yeah, I know. I can't believe we used to watch five fucking nominees in a week. Uh, it used to kill me <laughs> getting that done. Uh, but yeah, Catch Me If You Can came out in a really, really strong year. Was it? Um... No, it didn't. Oh, it didn't, eh? No. Do you want your five best picture nominees? Uh, hold on. Was that Aaron Brockovich that year? Nope. Uh, was it, uh, oh man, can, can you give me the winner? Chicago. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, give me, give me everything. Chicago, Gangs of New York, The Hours, Two Towers, and The Pianist. Yeah, I would easily substitute The Hours for, for Catch Me If You Can. No hundred percent. Not even, not even a conversation. Yeah. I would substitute Catch Me If You Can in there. Masterfully made movie. Um, I don't have the plot synopsis in front of me right now. Basically, it's about um, a man who, uh, from a young age of 17, runs away from home and starts forging checks to survive. And, uh, oh my god, this will not pop up on my IMDb. Here we go. Uh, Plot synopsis. Barely 21 yet, Frank is a skilled forger who has passed as a doctor, lawyer, and pilot. FBI agent Carl becomes obsessed with tracking down the con man. 
but Frank not only eludes capture, he revels in the pursuit. Uh, first of all, uh, right from the opening credits, the score of this movie oh. is brilliant, isn't it? Such a good score. So mysterious and playful all at the same time. One of my favorite movie scores, Catch Me If You Can. It's brilliant. Um, I don't have it in front of me right now. Who does it? I, I John Williams. A, yeah, I was going to say I have an inkling of who it was, but just wanted to make sure. John Williams, again, doing phenomenal work. Um, right from the opening credits and this fun little animation they do of uh, these two little stick figures uh, chasing each other. Right from the get-go, I am hooked on this movie. Leo doing great work playing somebody far younger than he actually is at the time, even even in 2002, playing like a 16-year-old at the beginning, playing Frank Abagnale Jr. Uh, Tom Hanks as Carl Hanratty is doing awesome stuff. His introduction, screaming at this French police officer, his own name, is great. Um, Christopher Walken as Frank Abagnale Sr. is cr- so Christopher Walken-y in this movie. That's the best way I can describe him. He's having a blast. Um, the whole cast of this movie... Top to bottom. Uh, fantastic work. Steven Spielberg, being one of the legends that he is, um, is obviously putting great looking stuff in the frame. But not only that, he is eliciting uh, world class performances from world class performers. Uh, it is so much fun, fun front to back. Um, you really feel for Frank, the main character played by Leo DiCaprio. He, when he started forging checks, he was basically just doing it to survive as a young kid, a young runaway. And by the time he realized the error of his ways, the only way he could survive was to continue eluding the FBI and continuing to forge checks. It was sort of this recurring cycle. He does not come off as a bad person. He just is somebody who he's somebody who just needs to run and loves the feeling of being chased. A lot of that comes from issues with his past. The character of Frank Avignale Jr. probably could have numerous essays written on him as far as his character background and his motivations and uh, his his upbringing. He is such a deep, interesting character, as well as Carl Hanratty. The writing is just fucking spectacular, as well as everything else in this movie. Manny, do you have anything you want to add about Catch Me If You Can? Oh, the movie is just an absolute brilliant fun ride it's so expertly crafted my only complaint is tom hanks's really bad accent work it's, yeah he has, a, he has a really over the top uh brooklyn accent doesn't he yeah it's it's not good but mm-hmm. it that doesn't diminish uh how enjoyable the movie is it's just an absolute delight some early amy adams work as well it's yeah. uh, it, the movie is the movie is one of those movies that is it's so unbelievable to think that this is a true story and most of it is true and that's what makes the movie even more enjoyable. It's it's so expertly shot, it's just it's Spielberg at his finest. It's if you have not seen Catch Me If You Can, it's a movie that I can't recommend enough. Uh, early performances uh, in mostly bit parts from Ellen Pompeo, Jennifer Garner, and like you said, Amy Adams. Amy Adams has the most to do of any of those three, mm-hmm. but uh, just small appearances from all of them, and uh, I'll, I'll do some pretty good work yes. under Mr. Spielberg's direction, of course. Um, yeah, I, I can't heap enough praise on Catch Me If You Can. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the <sighs> I was about to say it's one of the best films by one of the best film directors <laughs> of all time, but like is it? Oh, <laughs> I don't even think it would make his top ten. 
I know, and it's so good. <laughs> and that's the thing is that when people think Spielberg, what what do you think of when you think Spielberg? Jaws, maybe, or E.T., uh, Jurassic Park, like just only only some of the most important films ever made, right? Like, uh, like you can continue on Indiana Jones. Like it's just like just keep naming some of the most iconic films in American history, and you will. It, you will accidentally stumble upon a couple of Spielberg movies. So Catch Me If You Can kind of doesn't even come close to the top of his filmography in terms of fame. But it's just, it's so good. It is really, it's really, really so good. so good. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Catch Me If You Can, easy five for me. It's one of my all-time favorites. When we were doing our top 20 of all time, I think it was one of my last-minute cuts. It's so fucking fun. Nice. What's the other <laughs> one you got? The other one I didn't even input in Letterboxd, Manny, because I didn't want you to know that I was re-watching this movie. Uh, I watched <laughs> Pulp Fiction with Emma. <laughs> I watched Pulp Fiction with Emma because I, I just wanted this to... I didn't want to risk that you would look at my Letterboxd and see that I had watched this. So I uh, watched Pulp Fiction, uh, another brilliant movie by a brilliant filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino. His sophomore effort back in the year 1994. Um, what can you say about Pulp about Pulp Fiction that hasn't already been said. A brilliant writing achievement in cinema. Manny tells me all the time how I how this movie changed cinema in a way that I cannot fathom. And he's right, because uh, th- this movie's effect has already rippled to our current moment in 2021. Uh, that feels weird to say, 2021. Uh, <laughs> um, it, the effect that this movie has had on cinema is... in It's indescribable but that being said i i think the real highlight of this movie if i'm going to pick just one is the dialogue the the way the characters talk to each other in this movie is something that had not been seen before and frankly we haven't even really seen since even other tarantino movies barely come to the level that the dialogue comes through in this movie i can think of exactly one movie where the dialogue is as good as this movie that tarantino has done and it's my favorite movie ever <laughs> it's inglorious bastards uh the dialogue between samuel l jackson and john travolta right from the beginning of this movie uh is masterfully crafted a lot of people will tell you that the dialogue in tarantino movies is about nothing or is about is not about the plot or is not even about the movie. It's just people talking. And those people are what I like to call wrong. Because it, if you just look at it at surface value, or at, at, at the surface level, yes, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta are just talking about a trip to uh, a, a trip to Europe. They're talking about McDonald's. They're talking about Big Macs. They're talking about foot rubs. They're talking about just anything but the plot, really. But through the course of that conversation, you learn so much about these characters that you don't even even you don't even realize that this is an expositional conversation. You don't realize how much you learn about these conversations in this how about these characters in the opening conversation. I can't even talk about this movie. I'm so excited to talk about it. I can't even get my words straight. You don't realize that you learn these people's profession. You just learn that John Travolta just came back from a trip to Europe and is now getting back into the game. You learn about Marcellus Wallace. You learn about his wife. You learn about how very protective Marcellus Wallace is of his wife. And you learn that you do not fuck with that. that that's, And you learn that this man is a person that these two work for and is obviously very dangerous. So much jam-packed into this fun little conversation about stupid bullshit. And it's, it's all expositional, and you don't even realize it. 
And that I, I would break down every scene in the movie like that if I could because it just goes on and on and on. But fuck me, Manny, if the dialogue in Pulp Fiction isn't spectacular. I know you're waiting patiently. Please gush for just a second about this masterpiece. I don't want to gush for too long because, uh, spoiler alert, uh, this movie's on the books for this year. And, <laughs> and we will be uh, devoting a, a fair chunk of time towards this movie. But yes, uh, I, I have mentioned to Sam before that I don't think anybody that wasn't, uh, I would have to say, well, they'd have to be born either in the very early 80s or the late 70s. Uh, anything after that, I don't think they can fully understand and appreciate the impact that this movie had on cinema and how much it changed everything. Prior to Pulp Fiction, people just didn't talk like this in the movies. And there are so there have been so many ripoffs, and now so many copies, and now it's just almost the norm. The it was it wasn't just because of Pulp Fiction, but Pulp Fiction is the one that really uh, brought it to the forefront. Uh, Clerks and True Romance, which was also written by Quentin Tarantino, uh, are two other movies that really started using pop culture references and bringing them to the forefront of movies and movie dialogue. I only went uh, I won't I shouldn't even get into the history because I'll go into it much more and think but but this movie was uh, life-changing for me this movie brought me to where I am today and for my appreciation of movies uh, I can't heap enough praise on this movie and the dialogue this movie is just so incredibly well done that uh, I actually used to have a copy of it on I used to have how did I? I can't even remember how I did. But I recorded the entire movie, just the dialogue, and would just listen to it on tape. That's what I did. I put the, I put my tape player up near the speakers and just recorded the whole movie, and I would just listen to the movie. Th that's how good the dialogue is. Is that I could just listen to this movie over and over again. Uh, yeah, this movie for those of you that for anybody that knows me and anybody's listening to this podcast, they know that this is my number one movie. And I, I love that you hid it from me. That makes me laugh. <laughs> I think I was right, too. <laughs> I actually try not to see the movie. I try not to look down uh, at the screen on my app, on my phone, to see what you guys have been watching because I, I want to try and keep it, uh, especially, especially yours, Sam. I try to keep it as fresh as possible so when we're discussing them on air, uh, I can have uh, uh, some surprises, but I I'm so glad that you watched it and enjoyed it. I hope Emma, like you said, you watched it with Emma. I hope that she enjoyed yeah, she it. Yeah, she had she had seen it before and she loves it. Yeah. It's, one, it's one of her, as far as I know, it's one of her favorites as well. God damn it! Now I'm gonna have to watch it this week. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, did I can you... finally add it to my letterbox. By the way, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> nice. What did you give it? Uh, I gave it a solid four. No, it's a five. Come on. <laughs> Come on, it's a five. Perfect. Uh, so that leads us to the last movie that we're going to talk about today. And for me, this is one of the more surprising films I saw this year. And I've watched it three times already, maybe even four. A 2020 release? Yep. Uh, and that's the comedy Palm Springs. Uh, oh, really? I have not seen this yet. Okay, then I'm not going to say anything because I want you to go in blind. I blind. I, I know I know that this movie exists, and I'm 
pretty sure is Andy Samberg in this movie. I've yes. Heard that. Yeah, okay, that's literally all that I know. Okay, I don't want to say anything as much. I, like I actually thought you'd seen this already, so I'm no. not even going to discuss anything else. I'm so glad I didn't even mention. I hope you're not even looking at the IMDb page. I'm not. No. Nope. Perfect. Good. I am going to just. We're going to end the episode here. I would. Sam, out of all and, the... Tw- an assignment to watch Palm Springs, I assume. Sam, out of the 2020 films, I would really like this to be at the top. Okay. With probably... It, oh, I already I already do have it on my watch list, so I'll uh, I'll catapult that to the top. Absolutely. It is on Amazon Prime, so okay. you, can, you can watch it there. Uh, Beautiful. Please watch this. Uh, I think... What is your opinion on Andy Samberg, just out of curiosity? Uh, he has made some really god awful movies, mm-hmm. but he also is the star of a show called Brooklyn Nine Nine, which right. I really, really like. It's okay, a really funny show. So you you have enjoyed you do enjoy him on that show, and you enjoy him in general. Just some of the movies he's made hasn't been the greatest. Yeah, Detective Jake Peralta in Brooklyn Nine Nine is a fucking hilarious character. And side note about his character, he is obsessed with Die Hard, and uh, that is that's my favorite thing about him. <laughs> he is just obsessed with Die Hard. <laughs> okay, perfect. I uh, I haven't seen Brooklyn Nine Nine. I've heard really great things. It's pretty good. I'm just gonna tell you right now, no spoiler like spoilers whatsoever. But Palm Springs will is easily on my top ten list. Easily. Okay. Easily. I mean, you've watched it watched it three times. I assume it must be. I, I Sam, I fucking love this movie, and so I'm gonna end it there. Uh, and I I really hope you check it out uh, as soon as possible. Cool. I am intrigued. I we're recording two episodes tonight, so I won't have time to watch it tonight. But I'll see if maybe uh, see if maybe Emma wants to watch it tomorrow. Okay. Uh, I, I am officially intrigued. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. So that's uh, that's it for uh, what we've been watching. That's going to end this episode. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. I guess uh, just before I go on, Sam, what do we got going on in a few days' time? In a few days' time, we are going to be doing our 52 in review. That is where we review sort of the last year of our podcast and the movies that we've talked about and give out all sorts of fun awards and stuff and have our own have our own little uh, celebration of the last year of the show. So uh, we'll, we'll be doing that, and it's going uh, to be must-listen podcasting. So don't miss it. It's always a ton of fun. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you give us a five-star rating and a positive review, it does increase the profile of our podcast, allows more people to find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast. Email us at sammanymoviepodcast at gmail.com. So... For the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast, I'm Manny Manuel. And I'm Sam Reimer. Adios!